Run your next PB at the Gold Coast Marathon in 2023. Fast, flat and scenic. There is an event distance for everyone, from the full marathon to the kids 2 and 4 kilometre junior dash. Enter now at goldcoastmarathon.com.au. Welcome to episode number 290 of the Inside Running Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another week. Just looking at the agenda here, it's going to be a big show this one. A lot happening in the running world and a lot happening in the life of one of the members on the Inside Running Podcast panel in Bradley Croker. We'll get to him in a second, but I'll introduce my co-host Julian Spence. I'm sure Great Ocean Road Marathon was on Sunday and he would have been kissing babies, signing autographs, posing for photos as the king of the Great Ocean Road. Welcome to you this week, Moose. Hey, mate. No, none of that for me. Nothing. Surely some selfies or something. People getting photos with you? <laughs> I'm long gone down there. Still I'm, got the reputation. Nah, they've moved on. I'm just a bloke working in a tent. No one cares. Someone come, like, no one gives a shit anymore. Sure, not. that is a bit uh, sad. It hasn't come. One guy gave it? me a pump up. One guy, the event director, gave me a pump up. Came over, said good day, and then uh, that was on Friday night. And then didn't hear about anything until I saw the uh, saw the finish time, and then I could go around telling people that it was slow and I'd run way faster. <laughs> Looking forward to talking about that event and how it went. Weather looked miserable, but I'll, I guess you'll be able to give us a. A real first-hand experience uh, as you were down there. My other co-host, he's just come out of hospital this morning, been in there since Friday, I think. Had a lot of people concerned. Bradley Croker, welcome to you this week. Thanks, Brady. Clearly, uh, and it's good to have you back, actually, because clearly when I host, it's no good for my heart. Yeah, I know. It's broken your one week of hosting. I am back because I wasn't sure. I didn't want you to be here because you don't usually come out of hospital, and this is kind of work for us, like, and return to your job. Um, that same day. So I gave you the week off. I had Ali Pashley teed up. I've got all the Road to Gold Coast stuff sorted. But you wanted to be here, which is good because you can tell the listeners exactly what's been happening. Um, And yeah, it's probably good for you to talk to some people, I suppose, because your life's a lot different this week than it was this time last week. Yeah, it actually wasn't that bad in the hospital. Like, yeah, there's internet and stuff now, and it was a weekend, so there's plenty of sport to watch on TV. Um, So I was able to do some of my programs and the agenda for the podcast so yeah and to be honest like i think the hospital visit was a bit of like overkill it's probably worse than uh yeah it's not as bad as what um yeah what it seemed i suppose from the social media post yeah the post looked bad didn't it moose had his shirt off too carly commented on that about croaks having his shirt off oh it looked yeah. very good with all the stuff on his you know all those stickers on your chest and stuff looked serious oh, as croaks 
But you pretty much have to have your shirt off or wear one of those gowns because I had those cords attached to me nonstop. Like I'd go into the shower with them on. Hey, I thought you looked good. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I was going to give it at least a a week before I got stuck into him about that post. Well, Uh, Moose, Moose, it's funny you say that because there have been a lot of positives that have come out of the social media posts. And the reason why I almost didn't do it was because I knew – that people like you be like, oh, look at this bloke, just wants a bit of attention. <laughs> a little bit of look at me time. I almost, <laughs> I almost didn't post anything, but there's been a lot of positives about me posting it, which I'll, I'll get to later. So tell us what happened, Croaks. So this time last week, uh, yeah, I, was, I wasn't on the show last week, but I remember listening to it, and you'd had the hard issues on the Friday workout, early in the workout, I think it was, and then it mm. settled down. You still doubled. You still got out for like 38K on the long run on the Sunday. And then how'd you find yourself in hospital? Yeah. So when I had that episode on the Friday, I went to the um, doctor straight away and he referred me to a cardiologist in here in Canberra, um, made the appointment, which was meant to be this coming Thursday. Um, but in the meantime, he wanted, the doctor wanted me to go and get like full blood tests. So I thought, all right, I've got basically two weeks to go and get these blood tests as long as the results are back for the cardiologist appointment. Um, and then do you want me to go through the first part of my training week? Yeah. And then, yep. yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, so Monday I got out in the afternoon, yeah, afternoon for an hour at four fifteen. actually felt really good off the back of this, the 38 K on the Sunday had no issues with the heart. Um, and I, I just think the shoes that you wear for these long runs now, like you're just not beat up. Like back in the day, if I ran 38 K at, four-minute Ks. Like, my legs would be pretty banged up, but I didn't have any of that on the Monday. Uh, and then Tuesday morning, I just did 7K on the treadmill, 12, uh, sorry, yeah, 12K an hour, so five-minute Ks. Then the session, the group session Tuesday night was just eight by three-minute reps off a minute rest down at Lake Burley Griffin. And I did have another little relapse here, um, not quite as bad as the Friday. Um, it was on if you yeah check my Strava, it was on like rep four. Um, so I'll just go through the splits. It was, yeah, like I went 308, 308, 308. And then on the fourth one, I averaged 309. But if you look at the pace, about halfway through the rep, I felt it sort of come on. And so I just went from running sort of low three-minute Ks to just like 330 for probably only like 20-odd seconds. And then it sort of kicked back into gear and I was fine again. And then I was fine for the rest of the session. So then I went... 305, 305, 303, 303. Um, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed that session. I felt quite strong. I did the same session the week before Canberra Marathon, but off 75 seconds rest. And I reckon I was probably averaged a bit faster uh, this time than than that previous time. So I was happy with how that went. Obviously, having another little um, yeah heart rate spike at like 200 wasn't like ideal, but I didn't feel... Like I don't have any chest pain when I do it. It's just this like shortness of breath and the pounding in my neck. Um, and then basically didn't have any more issues after that for the rest of the week. So Wednesday I did an hour 45 at 4.06s, listened to Road to Gold Coast, which was, um, yeah, entertaining and, and got me through the run. Um, yes, yeah, so I was, yeah, 25K or just over 25K at 4.06s. Then Thursday um, was just my, yeah, four, uh, 35 minutes, 4.12s. Um, so it's yeah, generally my easiest day of the week. And then I decided to go Friday morning for my blood test. Um, the reason why I went Friday was, one, I don't work on a Friday, and two, 
I wanted to get it um, done the day after like an easier day. I didn't want to go on like a Monday after I've run 38K because I thought that that might show some things, you know, in the blood test that are actually only a result of, you know, the day before and, and a long run. So I went Friday morning at first thing for the blood test because I had to do it fasted. And then after Lily's swimming, I jumped on the treadmill for another 7K at five-minute Ks because um, the plan was to meet one of my athletes out at Mulligans that afternoon for a, a, like a fartlek session. And I was going to do it at his pace, so treat it more as like a half to three-quarter session because I was going to do like a bit of a marathon-specific Sunday. Um, and then just as I was leaving the house, so like – probably like 3.30 or something, yeah, 3.30, my um my phone rang and I had it on silent, so I heard it vibrate and then there was a voice message saying, um, can you call? So I called back the number and um, it wasn't even my GP, it was just somebody from the medical clinic that obviously accessed my um, blood test and I couldn't really understand it too well. She had like a really thick Indian accent, but all I could take from it was um, something in the blood test was elevated and you should go to hospital. And I was just like, hang on, like, you want me to go to hospital? Um, and I said, what's elevated? And she, she said, um, like, troponin. And I was like, what the, what the hell is troponin? Um, and then, yeah, so Viv was out at her parents' place with the kids. And so I called my mate who I was going to train with and said, look, I probably shouldn't run. I've uh, been told to go to hospital. And then I called Viv. So she left the kids um, at the at her parents and then came and picked me up and we went into emergency. And I did a bit of Googling and, and troponin is basically like an indicator in the blood that there's like heart stress. So if you've had a heart attack, then the troponin levels are going to be like high. That's, that's how I understand it anyway. But I've also heard that you can get high troponin like after a hard workout. Um, which obviously you haven't had a heart attack, but your heart's obviously been under stress. So um, the medical clinic, uh, they sent me a referral via email and I took the referral into emergency. And when I saw the pathology report, the normal the normal reading for it was like 20 and I was 21. And when I showed the guy at the, the front desk, I sort of felt embarrassed a little bit. I'm like, why am I here when it's like, it's it's one point over like, the, you know, what's acceptable. Um, but they got me through real quick. Like, so I had, uh, an, uh, had, well, I had an ECG, they took some blood and I had a chest X-ray and then we're sitting out in the reception area and I was getting these emails saying, oh, you've got a test result that's come through. And so I could access my, I guess my health record and it would show me like the blood test results. And I was looking at all the blood test results, like, you know, hemoglobin and all that sort of stuff. And everything was in like the, you know, the healthy range. And we're watching the um, end of one of the football games. And I said to Viva, we'll be out of here soon because, um, you know, we'll have a night without the kids because the kids are at Viv's parents' place. We'll be able to watch a second game of footy and just chill out. And then the um, troponin blood test came back and I opened it up. And the hospital, um, so for them, the acceptable amount is 26 and it was 185. And I showed Viv that and I'm like, oh, <laughs> may not be going home Wait, and a couple so of how did it change from the first the, this was a different blood test yeah well it's the same troponin but it, i um somebody said something about different labs use different like parameters or something which is like really really confusing um so i yeah i don't know which to believe but obviously both tests the troponin was over the the normal level 
Um, but this one obviously seemed quite extreme when, you know, the acceptable amount's 26 or under 26 and I was 185. So um, the doctor came out and said, um, oh, just come with me out the back. And she's like, have you run today? I'm like, yeah. She goes, did you run hard? I'm like, no, I did like 7K on the treadmill, like pretty easy because I was going to do a session this afternoon. And so then that, I guess that figure from the blood test combined with my ECG, like my ECG, I don't think was bad, but it's also not particularly normal. But I think athletes' ECGs are probably different to the normal population. And so then when you're in a hospital, they go, well, this doesn't look like the normal population. So they then called up the cardiologist because the cardiologist wasn't in on a Friday night. And um, they then decided to keep me in and basically monitor me, which I think is largely because they obviously wanted to do more testing, but there's no way I was going to get any tests, like an ultrasound. Um, that couldn't happen on, you know, basically till Monday. So, um, yeah, I was stuck then in the hospital uh, all Saturday and Sunday. Um, they pretty much just, yeah, checked blood pressure, temperature, um, had like the ECG leads on me, like pretty much 24-7. So I had to like shower with them as well. Um, there was like the leads were in, uh, there was like a, yeah, like a waterproof bag that you sort of carry around. Uh, what, did, what else did they give me? Oh, that's right. On the first night, they, they injected a blood thinner into my stomach, um, I guess, to take a bit of load off the heart. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and there was like blood on the sheets. And I thought because they jabbed me with so many needles to try and find a vein to put a cannula in. I thought, oh, you know, my arm's bleeding. And then I looked down at my stomach and there was like a three to four centimetre strip just below my belly button of just thick, dry blood. And I was like, oh, it's disgusting. Where did the blood come from? From where they injected. Oh. Yeah, like they didn't because um, she injected me, but she didn't put like a Band-Aid over it or anything. And... I didn't think any of it, and then I've woken up and there's just blood everywhere. Uh, and then, yeah, throughout the weekend, they um, well, they they gave me some potassium and magnesium through the through the drip. Um, yeah, and then I had so this morning had an ultrasound, um, and then um, yeah, which actually funny enough, the lady that was doing the ultrasound this morning was Marty Dent's um, neighbour, so a good chat. And then yeah, I was discharged. But the positive thing most out of my social media posts was so many people that have like connections in the medical world with cardiologists and things like that um, and just experience in the area like reached out to me, which was really helpful in terms of um, you know, suggesting that I actually go and see a cardiologist who deals with athletes because a run-of-the-mill cardiologist might flag something that's actually not an issue, but it's like it's an issue for the general public because they don't have like athletes hearts so um like a mate of mine who i went to uni with his friend's a cardiologist cardiologist in sydney and he gave me a call and um recommended a lady in sydney and um brett coleman um past guest of the show like he was really helpful um he sort of put me in touch with um with andre down in melbourne who's like one of the top sports um cardiologist like in the country actually he was the guy that did remember the um Derek Clayton Derek, interview. Derek Clayton interview yeah. yeah yeah he runs with us he runs it with us a bit and um he's like the best in Australia isn't he at doing that job yeah Andre Legert yeah. yeah yeah and so he comes, he comes to our Sunday runs often yeah okay so I sent my I had one hard copy of a, an ECG so I sent that to both the cardiologist 
um, that I knew in Sydney and to Brett and Brett then passed that on to Andre and um, Brett and Andre had a chat and um, Brett's actually like put me uh, in contact with Andre. So I ended up cancelling my appointment this Thursday for the cardiologist in Canberra. Um, and so I'm going to organise a time to come down to Melbourne for some more like stress testing and stuff like that. Um, but I, I feel like 100% like fine. Um, like I don't have like chest pains or anything like that. So yeah, that's pretty much my week. Um, so I ran 80k. <laughs> the, 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 I guess the positive. Don't well, need to summarise how many k you did. The positive. Well, it, yeah, I would have done 150 if I didn't go to hospital. Oh yeah, you would have been prepping for this pacing job at the Gold Coast. <laughs> yeah, so I feel fine. And so what's going to happen now is yeah, the ultrasound. Um, so on discharge, I got given. I got given some like cholesterol tablets and some aspirin, even though my cholesterol is actually not that bad according to the um the blood test. It's more of a just preventative thing, but I'm not sure whether yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I got like these discharge papers which have all of my like ultrasound results. So I sent that through to Andre and Brett as well, and that all looks pretty good. So um yeah, I'm going to sort of leave it up to those guys now to let me know whether I can actually do sort of a bit of running until um. So a combination of the ultrasound, the ECG, my heart rate data, when these things happen, um, those guys will sort of give me an idea of whether I can still do some training until I get down to Melbourne to see Andre. you got to take this serious now, though, don't you? Like that weekly mm-hmm. recap last week, as you said, you would have pushed through and run 150K. Yeah. To be like, I'm not, I'm not super concerned by it. Um, and people I've spoken to, uh, yeah, like in the medical world, aren't necessarily that concerned by it either. I, the, the blood reading for me is one of those things. Like, I, I would love to know what troponin levels guys that run 160k a week have. Whether there is just some like okay. heart heart stress because of your running, not because you've had a heart attack. But um, wouldn't um. Wouldn't Andre know those things? Yeah, yeah. And so that's why I'm sort of liaising with him at the moment um, because yep. it's going to be a little while till I can get down to Melbourne. Um, and so if he thinks that it's okay for me to to run based on those troponin levels and everything he's seen in the ultrasound and ECG, then I'm happy to take his advice on it. Yeah, yeah. There's like, fuck, even on the weekend, because I was, I mean, I'm in the most social setting ever in a race. <laughs> Like and so everyone's coming up saying, "Oh, mate, he shouldn't fuck around with that. Like he shouldn't be messing around. Like I've got." And then you would hear like nightmare stories of people who, who had issues like this, like the exact thing that you had, but had proper heart damage, and yeah. had to have like full on work. And um, yeah, so it's like yeah, the, the pro- yeah. The Friday the heart, night you can't freak, fuck around with the heart. No, nah, the Friday night freaked me out a little bit because here I was watching the end of the footy in the reception after I'd had all the tests and the blood tests coming through. I'm like, yep, yeah, sweet. And then when they call me out the back and then all of these different doctors are coming in going, um, you know, do you have chest pain? Does it hurt here? Did, and I, like, I'm like, well, I don't have chest pain, but I'm having some anxiety now, which is – almost the same as some chest pain because of what's happening. And it starts to make you realize that, and I don't know if you guys do this, but as a runner, like, yes, if you ask me like what's important to like, to be a good runner, you need to have obviously the heart is everything. But when you're training hard, I don't think about a hard injury. I think about if I train too hard or do too much volume or too much intensity, I'm going to get bone stress. 
I'm going to tear a muscle, I'm going to get sick, or I might get some tendonitis. I never think that potentially if I train too hard all the time that I could damage my heart. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't. That's not something you worry. No, you don't, do you? You think about all these other injuries. But, but, yeah. What about the whole um, you've got a certain number of heartbeats? (laughs) Yeah. Imagine if he's used on his quicker long runs as well, Moose. (laughs) This bloke's rolled a lot of heartbeats on the (laughs) side. Six workouts a week. The flip side of that, when you're super fit, you yes, your heart rate beat, beats high for that like hour or two that you're exercising. But then yeah. um, I think I, I don't know if I said it while we're recording, but off air they came in in the middle of the night and woke me up to see if I was okay because my heart rate was 35. And I'm like, well, that's like that's just my resting heart rate, which is you know probably 25 beats than average. So for every minute I'm saving 25 beats on the average person, even though you know over an hour or two each day I'm running with relatively high heart rate. So I don't know. Anyway, I feel fine. Um, the, the weekend wasn't as bad in hospital as I thought it was. I actually feel more sorry for Viv because Viv's the one that had to, like, deal with the kids on her own for the weekend while I was just catching up with mates and watching footy in a in a room on my own. Yeah. Okay. So have you got that Melbourne appointment booked in? No. So it's happening sort of in the in – the, we're in the process of it. Okay. Because um, all the emails between, like, Brett, myself, and Andre were only, like, yesterday and last night. Brett yeah. Coleman, one of the best blokes we'll ever meet. Oh, yeah, I know. Top How bloke. good is he? Yeah. yeah. He was, yeah, so, so helpful. How well. Um, Croaks, one yep. of the more important questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I know this one. <laughs> How many likes on the Instagram post? Oh, no. Oh. I, it wasn't the one I was going to ask. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Actually, I'd... Let me check. Um, but but <laughs> it, admittedly, like it was, you know, it's it's pretty cool to be part of the community. Like I should also say thank you to all the people that did like reach out and message me or liked it or whatever. Um, and even like just having the contacts there to like help me navigate. Um, because up until now, like I didn't have a lot of faith in the cardiologist I was going to see because that's just been referred to by my GP. Like I know nothing about the guy. But then when guys like Brett and Sean Crichton messaged me saying, hey, I'd suggest going and seeing Andre in Melbourne, and, like, you know, you hear his reputation and you you see that he's working with Derek Clayton and, and pro cycling teams, and to have the opportunity to go and see someone like that, I, like, I feel it's put my mind at ease a little bit. So, yeah, thanks to everybody, I suppose, that messaged me or liked my Instagram post. Seven, uh, 767, Moose. Oh, oh record numbers for you. You'd break a thousand, wouldn't you, though, a hospital ah. photo? Nah, some people him. won't like that, though, because they're like, oh, I shouldn't like this. Because you're liking the fact that it's in hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So you've yeah, got to go, you. go pro rata, though, as a percentage of how many, um, how many people you follow you. That's true. Uh, I've only got like two thousand. Oh, it's like forty five percent though. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, that's a lot of big lot. influencers only get two or three percent croaks. He, know, two, he knows two, how to do it. Uh, two thousand two hundred. Almost to this time next week, Moose. <laughs> as many likes as he did have little sensor things on his arms. <laughs> One of those. Oh, the other the other the other people I should thank are like the medical staff. Like we've said it before, probably yeah, when like when Moose, you're in hospital. Yeah, but like they are the most positive people you'll ever meet. Like they're at work, but they don't like get around like kicking stones. Like they seriously treat you as if you're like the only person in the world. Like they are yeah, pretty phenomenal. Like even at three in the morning, you know, they come in bright and bubbly. So yeah, they're 
pretty amazing. I, I couldn't do it. Croaks, five weeks' time, Gold Coast. It's your grand final, this race, every time of the year, this time of the year. Pace and job. Uh, have you pulled the pin on that? Or you still no, think you're going to get uh, up for it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from, like, Andre as to, like, if he's happy for me to keep running, um, then I'll keep training. Like, he might say, get yeah, run, but just, you know, don't do, like, the intensity side of things. So I haven't ruled out Gold Coast yet. Um, I don't think I'm going to do the race in Wollongong, though, in two weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> smart. Yeah. All right. Because I, I, figure, I figure with Gold Coast as well, it's not like – well, I, I have changed Gold Coast a little bit in that if you asked me last week was I going to finish the marathon, there was probably like a pretty high chance that I was going to get myself as fit as possible in the next, you know, five to six weeks with the aim of getting to 30K and then seeing how I feel and maybe kick down again. But I think I've definitely ruled that out. I, um, I, I think it would just be purely a pacing gig, which means I don't probably have to be quite as fit to get through, you know, halfway in 72 minutes. So I can probably just dial things back a bit. Yeah. But what about, um, like, do you have advice if you're out, like, is anyone, t- say you go out for a run or a workout or whatever, and then your heart rate does this thing, or your heart does this thing where you get a really high heart rate. Like, what advice have you been, have you been given around that? I haven't been given any yet. But actually, the other thing that Andre emailed me today was this um, a link to a website. Like, uh, I'm actually just opening it now. It's like cardia.com, and it's basically like it gives you like a real life ECG. So it's obviously something that you wear. That so if I was out running, for example and I had one of these episodes, it would be recorded as an ECG instead of a, um, like just a heart rate spike, which that information would be really helpful for guys like Andre to work out what it actually is. So I, um, and Brett suggested I get one of those as well. So like about $200, I think. So it's like I'm a heart like, rate strap is the well, same sort of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know, like, because I've only got I only got home from hospital at lunchtime today. Like, I haven't had time to sit down and look at it, but um, there's something here that, yeah, will give you you can do get basically get a printout of an ECG, um, uh, like you know, in real time or like after you've run or something like that. And then I I could I could send that digitally to whoever, and they could like you know, um, work out what it means. Yeah. Because because the problem is like I was in hospital for three days, and that's the reason I was in there was they were trying to uh, get me to have an episode, but I don't have, but I've never had any issues when I'm not, you know, um, when I'm at rest. So um, it was unlikely that it, anything was going to show up on the ECG as a problem, and it, and it didn't. Other than uh, there's like a uh, like a delay in my heartbeat by like one to two seconds at times. But once again, that's just an athlete thing. It's like you miss sort of miss a beat or there's a there's a, a pause. Um, but that's not anything to worry about. Okay. Yeah. Stay tuned next couple of weeks after you see Andre. Yeah. He'll know what's going on, the boss. Moose, mm. tell us about your training week. Do much? Oh, pretty average training week. I had a little Achilles niggle and I um, felt it on the Monday. I ran eight and a half K. I was going to double this day, but I felt it at the end of the run. So I decided not to double on the Monday. Went out Tuesday, jogged to warm up, no problems. Jumped into Ali's session, 
which was four by eight minutes at threshold with 90 seconds rest in between. And I, it was horrible for me. <laughs> so the, the heart rate of mine, I thought I was having some croaker type dramas <laughs> because fuck, it went up quick and it went up above where it should have been. So it hit, it hit threshold at about a minute into the workout which is just crazy considering the pace that we ran was actually really even. So I don't know what happened, but this was the first workout after I'd had time off with my back. And there's a bit of other shit going on, like having another like stress around the stores and everything like that. Uh, so, and the baby's sick, like she had foot and mouth here. So there was, she was, she had a bit of a virus and, I thought, oh, maybe I got a virus myself after this workout. Um, so yeah, it was really difficult. I had a shocker. Um, if you go into the laps, like the first lap we did was 3:25 pace, and then the second lap was 3:21. That was a tailwind though, uh, but my heart rate was much higher. And then on the th the end of the second lap, I started to feel my Achilles a bit. So I um. I, I just basically bailed out at five minutes on the third rep. Um, and that was 3.28. But look, I was pretty – That's that was a hard workout for me anyway. So it, it, I was kind of happy the Achilles played up a little. Uh, funnily enough, I stopped, rested, and then jogged the warm-up, jogged the cool-down and didn't feel any problems at all in my, in my ankle. So uh, – yeah, just a real shit workout for me. Um, have, joined... a look, have a look at Ali's comment here, Croaks. Heart rate's a bit high there, champ, not threshold. I love how she's called you champ after you ripped into her last week. Champ is like the yeah. best word when you want to have a go, like yeah. suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the interesting, I didn't call it threshold though. So she's had a crack, but she's just off the mark. <laughs> I don't like it's. She's tried to be funny, but it hasn't worked well. If I had have written threshold, uh, then yeah, maybe, but 19 likes for that. You'd think as an Olympian, you're getting more than 19 length likes when you have a crack at someone. But all, but all she needed to write moves was just nice session champ. It would have been just as yeah. effective. Yeah. She's not funny enough for that though. She tries, to, yes, she tries a little too hard. See, Dave McNeil also trying a bit hard on her, on yeah. her workout. Zero likes. Zero likes. <laughs> Lucky these Olympians can run fast. Oh yeah. Not the funniest crew here. Um, I was up in Melbourne the next day. I drove up real early and ran before the actual conference. So I uh, ran down Smith Street before the sun came out in Collingwood. That was pretty interesting. A few of the Collingwood supporters getting around, Brady. Oh, yeah? I'm, I'm assuming they were Collingwood supporters. They kind of look like Collingwood supporters. From the Collingwood Army. What was it? Wednesday. Wednesday morning at like... Still on the beers after the Sunday win, maybe. I don't think it was beers that they were on. Um, a lot of action around the public toilets was interesting. Isn't Collingwood like a real upmarket suburb now? Like oh, hipster? Or not? Smith, not yeah, Smith, Smith Street, Street and that? Uh, there's a Street? few hipster things, but, but not at that time of the morning. It was okay. pretty average. Fuck, it stunk like piss everywhere there. But I ran down past like the G and then across, did a lap of the tan, ran way too fast around the tan as you do. Like, hard to keep under control there. I remember going up one hill and some bloke in cotton shorts and Keanos and a tank top was, like, racing me 
like, fuck, I'm not going to let you beat me up here, but I also shouldn't be running this hard right now. Um, it was kind of, it's hard work to go for a jog around Melbourne without getting like flexed on. So that was 12.3. I think I felt my Achilles on this run at about 45 minutes. Uh, next day, just ran, stayed at the other end of the Smith Street, did the same sort of thing. Did a lap around Olympic Park for uh, just a bit of nostalgia. Felt the Achilles same point, about 40, 45 minutes. So not much improvement, but also I can get runs in without noticing it. And then um, on the uh, – oh, yeah, then I fucked my back. So my back went bad on um, Friday morning. Friday night in bed, I could just feel it getting sore and sore. And then I got up to run early Friday morning. I was at the running company conference, so I was supposed to be there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, Friday morning, tried to jog, got three steps and thought, no, this ain't happening. Got back to the room and um, Bree's sick. She, she's sick, Pia's sick, and so she said, you got to get home. I can't look after the baby today. I'm, like she's lying on the ground with some sort of migraine. Throwing, she's thrown up already. So I had to boot it back from Melbourne. It's like two hours home still, so not not great. Uh, my mum's my over in Europe right now, and her parents are in Perth, so no one could look after the baby. So I got home, uh, looked after Pia for a while. Bree recovered enough. I went and collected a van that, um, that was packed full of stuff for, for Great Ocean Road Marathon and, and drove down to the, uh, the coast. So drove down to Apollo Bay. And set up shop down there. Um, Saturday, worked in the expo at Great Ocean Road Marathon Festival. So just like slinging stuff, gels, socks, all that sort of business. Uh, the races were on just out the front. It was pretty cool vibes. Great race that. I, if you haven't ever stayed down in Apollo Bay for this festival, you should do it one time because it's it's like a community race on steroids. That's the best way to put it. It's like it doesn't it feels like people like this is their first event and so there's heaps of people that like are really raw to running and there's a heap of excitement around that you don't get like the real nerd runners there or you do get a few of them but there's a lot that are like just footy players doing their first half and um it, i really like it down there uh that arvo ran with um louis rowan we somehow have timed this again last year we did the same thing went for a run after the expo and my mate Pistol, who was just um, running the marathon the next day, got in the Blue Doctor afterwards. Me and Louie had a swim. Uh, woke up Sunday morning, went for a light jog before the race came into town, went and checked out the damage from the weather. Like in the expo, my, the marquee was kind of bent and fallen over and exposed all some all of our stuff that had got wet overnight, so that was shit. The weather was atrocious on Sunday down there. Um, and yeah, that was my week. So it was like, I'm going to say it was 50K or so. 58. 58, yeah. Uh, I thought I was on top of the back. Wasn't. This Achilles thing seems okay. Haven't felt it for a while now, which is good. Um, but I haven't also run over like 30 minutes for the last three or four days. Mm. So, so I don't really care at the moment. Like my, I've got so much work to do that I, I can't. 
I can't even get motivated to run because I've got so much stuff to do. So this is a time in my running where running is like third or fourth priority. And and I've, I'm sort of coming to terms with that now. I've got to get through this, deal with the business stuff. Um, and then like obviously family stuff happens. And then if I get out for a run, cool. But I'm not really too concerned about it, especially when the body's not perfect. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get through some busy stuff at work and then hopefully I can start rolling some running again. That's good though, that you recognize that like so many people don't and then try to like force it and then you end up broken anyway or something, you know, yeah. relationships put under stress or your workplace or something like that. Like something ends up breaking somewhere, but you've kind of thought, yeah, I can't be pushing the running at the moment. Otherwise could be an issue somewhere else. Well, I'm just not sure how people can do it. I'm not sure how someone can have like an intense job, a family at home, and then go and punch out like high mileage with with a really like fo- focus on performance. Mm-hmm. I could never have done that. Like never ever. Even when I was focusing on running quite a lot, like home was easy. There's no baby there. Like you live by with your partner and you've got no real responsibility. Um, and then work, I, I, would, I could step away quite easily back then. And so I didn't have much stress at all outside running. I, I'm, I'm, I couldn't have done what I was doing back three, four years ago if I had the same responsibilities right now. Yeah, probably didn't realise how good you had it either back then. Nah, not at all. I, I definitely know I didn't. Well, I did when Watto had his kid. Yeah. So that was the first sign of it. When I, was, I watched him kind of have to uh change everything around his running and i'm like yeah okay that's going to happen like it, it can't be done and he's he said he's like you get no sleep you um you're running in the dark like it's it's just not you're always sick from the kid giving you viruses and that so yeah i i saw it coming um but again my body's not good enough to to put me in a spot where i can be a anywhere close to an elite runner at anymore so it's like why would you push why would you force something that's clearly not working and sacrifice important shit that right now is actually really important at on tipping point like business stuff are you worried about berlin oh i don't think there'll be berlin berlin oh, we pretty poor. much decided yeah like we're looking at um looking at buying a house so we we just sold our um other house a couple of weeks ago uh and so now we're starting to look for a house and 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 we can, you know what buying a house at the moment is pretty hard work so we yeah, especially on the coast yeah you can't go affording that so it's like okay we still haven't gone on a honeymoon since we were married so we have like a honeymoon fund there but we just won't spend it i think it's going to go to a house instead and that's stress like selling houses Oh, mate, you would know. You're estate. a fucking real estate mogul up there. And <laughs> Definitely not. But dealing with yes. solicitors and real estate agents and bloody yeah. tenants and like, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And Emails. and then, you, then your baby gets sick. Like, yeah, that's so, it, it can yeah. be done when everything is just tight. But the minute something like just becomes a little bit more difficult, it just throws the whole week out. Yeah. Like and that's yeah. The minute one of the kids gets sick or doesn't sleep or some event comes up at work and it goes from like a seven out of ten stress to a nine out of ten, like your whole week just crumbles off you. That's why I have I have way more respect for those 
so I guess semi-elite people, like as you said, Moose, that have family, work full-time jobs, are out getting their runs done at like 4.30 in the morning, but are still like nailing 130K a week. And they're running like, I don't know, like 2.30 for a marathon or something like that. With everything else that they've got going on, it's almost more impressive than like a sub 220 when all you're doing is running. Yeah, I I know. Because even this weekend, watching people finish the marathon, in my head, I'm thinking, I am so far off being ready to actually finish a marathon right now. And I don't even care about the time. Like running the length of this road is out of my scope of capability. That, and it, it makes me also respect people that can get to the start line. Mm. Like getting to the start line is a big deal. And I, I did, I undervalued that for a long time. <laughs> But it's it's almost like the win right there to be on a start line healthy. So not racing that, not yeah. racing this weekend? Yeah, yeah I'll probably Bendier. race this weekend. Yeah. Should we stay Saturday sitter. night and do a long run Sunday. His long run's thirty minutes. Yeah. No. Not doing that Saturday during <laughs> the race. I'll um we're Bree's we're catching the bus up, Bree and I. So we drop Pierre at um Anarchy, which is on the way, which is where her parents live, and then jump on the bus and get dropped off again. So it should be fun. Didn't you just say her parents lived in Perth? No, I said they they were in Perth. Oh, like in Perth. Gotcha. Holiday. Yeah. Um, the trend will continue on my week, fellas, because sickness has been going through our household as well. And I've been dealing with it the last two weeks. Like just just congested, um, just sore throat, cough. Probably had COVID. Test a couple of times, but it's never been positive. But feverish, very much like all the... Uh, all the things, but I've kind of been getting through the running. It never impacted my running, like a lot of snot rockets, heart rate kind of feels like it's in the right spot, getting workouts done, but it finally hit me this week where I had to modify the running training. So Monday was quite normal. I uh, got out for 30 minutes at 4.32s in the morning and then afternoon run a 12.8K and some strides, and that felt good, but just constantly like having coughing fits afterwards. I think I spoke to you boys off air uh, Monday night after you guys did the weekly show and I did Road to Gold Coast and just couldn't get like my coughing under control. Um, and then Tuesday, my day off work where I kind of do prioritise running. I'd been trying to get a long run in or a workout um, of some substance on that kind of Tuesday and went to went to Karop where I run these hills and was planning to do 40k but kind of got 15k in and just was feeling a bit ordinary and um, did get to my car and I'm like, no, nah, no, nah. they've kind of done the loop at 15k and I thought, no, nah, I'll keep going, like I'm feeling okay and just had to keep stopping and just coughing and trying to get my kind of breathing under control. I think my elapsed time, I ended up capping it at like two hours, but my elapsed time was like two hours and eight minutes just from, you know, constantly stopping and just trying to, just not coughing up anything, just trying to, just dry coughing and yeah, wasn't much fun. Um, so at that stage I thought, nah, this is... I've got to respect this a bit more. It's not one of those cold you can just kind of push through. So I uh, drove home and pretty much went to bed for the rest of the day. I tried to run Wednesday morning. I did like 5K at 450 pace. And I just uh, was like, nah, this this is, yeah, can't even just jog easy with this kind of stuff. So I had Thursday completely off. Um, Friday, I started to feel a bit better. Just did 10K in the morning at 431s. And that was okay. Um, Saturday, I feel like I turned a page and felt a bit better again. Ran 14k in the morning at 4:27s, and then uh, 7k in the afternoon at 4:19s. 
Um, and that was that was much better. So I teed up with Archie to do a long run. We went out to the Barmer Forest, and I hadn't done like a long run or a workout for I think eight days. So I was planning to just put a bit of steady effort into the long run. So we ran 15k in one direction from Barmer towards Achuca. We actually ran past AFL fans. Um, the Indigenous round was this week gone. I think it's this coming week as well, maybe two rounds. But it's named after a guy called Sir Doug Nichols. And Sir Doug Nichols is actually from the uh, Aboriginal mission at Barmer, which is called Cumbra Gunja. So, and he's actually buried there as well. So he's a, a Yorta Yorta man where I kind of live and where Barmer is and things like that. So it's kind of, it's just so much like, dense forest and bushland and um, has so much indigenous history on these kind of roads and stuff that I just just love getting out there and find it pretty special to be running in such a um, like a significant place where so many uh, indigenous legends I guess come from that area so we started there ran 15k in one direction and then kind of steady on the way back probably averaged 340 pace um, back to the car and then I just did 2k cool down so all up it was 32k 346s finished the week off a whole lot better than it started but only 116k for the week but I'm feeling like the sickness is potentially uh I'm on the other side of it and I can start because Gold Coast is coming around quick I think it's five weeks yesterday um so yeah I've got to start doing some kind of work to be confident to have a crack I'm in a bit bit of two minds like I think I if everything goes well the next month I can have a crack and uh, ideally try to try to run a PB would be nice just to just to get under that 219.53 uh, don't try to have that massive breakthrough but just try to put a PB on the board was was the kind of plan and be feeling good in the second half but I think if if one more thing goes wrong in the next two or three weeks I'll potentially have to look at it and be like let's let's run with the lead females or let's just have a positive experience here and take a bit of the pressure off and um, just get the job done instead of trying to just blast one and, and run something a bit quicker. So we'll see what the next month holds. But, yeah, kind of in two. six weeks. It's six weeks from yesterday. Six weeks yesterday, is it? Mm. Okay, so I got kind of like, yeah. And I just might have to cut the taper a bit shorter. Um, but, yeah, I've done a couple, probably, yeah, I've done a couple of two or three marathon workouts and feel if I can hit one marathon workout in a 35 to 40K long run the next four or five weeks, I should be in a decent spot. Well, I guess you're trying to juggle it with AV um, races as well, aren't you? Yeah, so there's two cross-country races, one this weekend, and then there's a 12K as well. But I'm really just using those as kind of hard workouts. Um, so hopefully, yeah, the plan is to do the one in Bendigo Saturday and then do a decent long run Sunday. And when I say decent, like a lot of Ks, but not any intensity kind of thing. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. But everyone's, yeah, everyone's back better now in my household, which is good. Just got to stay that way. But anyway, hopefully we can get to a start line, which is what we're just talking about, Moose. Let's uh, thank some Patreon supporters, fellas. Do you want to go for s- Sorry, sorry. I was uh, pretending to something. A lot of sick people at the moment. Oh, my in mate. In your position here. My mate Kramer's had 100 kids from your school away the other day. 100. Yeah, yeah. It's it's rotten. Like, I checked in with all the athletes yesterday, see how you're going. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, sick. Yeah. Yeah, just, just jogging, got the flu got the flu yeah I'm like oh gee this is getting around yeah and covid like we had people at conference like a couple of people were away with covid um that's starting to hit back again yeah 
it's really it is really getting there and it's that juggle with the running too like i feel there's some stuff you can push through whereas other stuff you kind of got to respect it a bit more and just trying to i don't i don't mind being a bit underdone six weeks out too like i'd prefer to be underdone than overdone um so i'm telling my guys like it's okay if you we can get very fit in the last three or four weeks as long as you're you know healthy you don't want to keep pushing through it and turn a one week sickness into three yeah yeah and, and there's no point you're not going to get fit when you're sick and you're pushing through that like doing hard workouts when you're sick that yeah. is not improving fitness that was my problem i like was way too stubborn so i was sick and like massive like snot you know when you even like your teeth hurt because there's like such a build-up in like your cheeks and stuff you ever had that like your no, gums no. oh that's no. what yeah. i had and like my i was so blocked up i could not breathe through my nose and I was doing like, I think I did a 39K long run and a 3x6K and just been way too stubborn. And now it's just turned into a three-week thing, whereas I should have said, get on top of it, take three or four days easy, jog through. But we're suckers to like mm. that perfection of the program and you've got to hit this and you've got to hit that. And um, yeah. Special special breed runners. It's the same with niggles. So yeah. like, if you take If you take one to two days off with a niggle, you can come back and be 100%. Like I did with that Tibant the week of um, Sydney 10. But then you run through it for three or four days and it's a three-week injury. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to get worse too, Moose. The weather's just going to keep getting colder and colder as well. So, yeah, watch this. See what happens next few weeks. Yeah. Anyway, let's thank some legends who support us on Patreon. Who you got, Croaks? Uh, i got Magnus Lilland from Oslo, Norway. Uh, he's got a half marathon PB of 86 minutes set at the Soweto Half Marathon in Johannesburg. This course has over 200 metres of elevation and was run at 1,700 metres above sea level. So fair to say you can run a fair bit faster on a flat course at sea level. Uh, he's also ran 258 at last year's Copenhagen Marathon. He's a consultant at Bain & Company, which is based in both Oslo and Johannesburg. Um, they're a global consultancy that helps the world's most ambitious change makers define the future. Across 65 cities in 40 countries, we work alongside our clients as one team with a shared ambition to achieve extraordinary results, outperform the competition, and redefine industries. Well, I'm sold. Got no idea what that means, but that's um, that's their catchphrase. That's very nice. Do you reckon they pay a lot of money for someone like a consultant to come up with that? Mm, probably. <laughs> Anytime you put consultant next to your name, you can charge quadruple. Mm, well, they are consultants, but I reckon they've paid a consultant for that to come up with. <laughs> you ever done like a what mission, you, mission statement? What do you reckon they do, though? Does the running company have a mission statement? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Like, imagine, did you sit around coming up with that? Graduate outcomes, Croaks? You ever sat in staff meetings stuff. coming up with that stuff? No. Oh, I switch, I switch off. I know, exactly. Stuff happens. You sit there for four weeks coming up with these mission statements and no one can tell you what the mission statement is a week after. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that what's, is. What's the running company's mission statement? I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. like, I don't know it off the top of my head. But um, I remember it had to have all the right words in it. Yeah, yeah. Like the words that define you or whatever. Hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't – see, I look at – I always struggle with these consultant stuff and go, but what do you do? Like, what does a day look like? Mm. Yeah, like, I don't know. What, this is so – like, you read their thing, like, a global consultancy that helps the world's most ambitious change makers define the – what does that mean? Define the future. That's a very big responsibility to do that. 
<laughs> well, on their website, some of the industries they work with, like aerospace and defense, oh. aut- automotive and mobility, aviation, energy and national resu- na- natural resources, financial services, real Jeez. estate, private equity, metals, technology. Jesus. Every- yeah. Good work, Magnus. That's Magnus. Good. Who are you thinking, Moose? See if you can match that. Uh, Tara Brain. That's Tara with two R's, by the way. So Tara Brain, she uh, she ran, she's fast. Mm, she is. 35.51 at this year's Run the Bridge. She was eighth. And in the City to Bay 2022, that's Adelaide, 42.31, 11th place. 77.44 at the 2022 Sunny Coast half. She was 12th there. Uh, we're pretty sure she's PhD candidate at RMIT University in chemical engineering. Smart. Ah, another smart. You only and read fast. out the smart and people, fast. right? Smart <laughs> and fast. You you only pick the the smartest ones to read out. No, just yeah, they're um just whatever. Like whoever's on the list. That's the list, Moose. That's the list. Yep. How do you get on the list? Sign Patreon. up at patreon.com forward slash inside runner podcast. That's why recently we've had a few of the um the blue collar. Yeah, they hit sign the... ups. Yeah, because they like here I'm a blue collar guy. Here they we hit go. the inbox too. They go, just letting you blokes know there's a blue collar tradie out here supporting yeah. you guys. I'm gonna thank Matt Sortarik. He runs for Essendon. He's also fast. According Sostaric. to Sostaric. Sostaric. Sostaric I went with. Mm. Anyway. Hopefully I've got that right, Matt, but I probably haven't. Runs for Essendon is very fast as well. He has a 1,500-meter PB of 4.02 and a 3K PB of 8.58. Also, he ran 36.28 at the Albert Park 10K back in 2018, which was his first ever road race. He's an exercise physiologist at the Performance Center in Fitzroy. So also very high on the IQ ladder with that kind of qualification. Thank you, Matt, for your support. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, Magnus, over there in uh, Oslo. If you like what we do on the Inside Run podcast, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash inside running podcast. Um, Road to Gold Coast, still coming out. I'm, uh, oh, I've had some issues, boys. I told you about the issues. The curse has got another one. The curse. The Road to Marathon curse. Are you going to announce it now? Yeah, yeah, I think I should. Well, it's pretty easy. People know what they're talking about. We spoke about it last week that usually the people we sign up for the Row 2 series is um, someone gets injured, DNS, or someone doesn't finish the marathon. It's been a very um, very popular trend over the, I think, seven Row 2 series that we've already done. And our boy, Reese Edwards, has had an issue. We signed him, I think, on the Friday. He did a run on the Saturday and the Sunday. And then he hasn't run since the first recording on the uh, Monday night. He's waiting on a bone scan. So we're not 100% sure if he's going to be... He might have a small cameo throughout the next seven weeks on the road to Gold Coast. But the exciting news is that we've found a replacement and a very good replacement in that. I'm going to say it could be the most... um, It could be the most... What's the word? Hyped up. Debut. uh, Debut marathon in Australia for probably probably since Andy Buchanan debuted. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I reckon. Well, this guy's actually quicker than Andy over the half marathon. So yeah. there's, there's a case to argue that this guy could have the, the most hype around his debut marathon. A lot of people didn't know he was debuting, 
but he is a 61.43 guy at a downhill course over in Rome. His official uh, PB is 63.31 at the Gold Coast Half Marathon in 2022. His name's Tim Vincent. He's uh, is coming in from Queensland. Very nice of him to uh, accept the invitation to fill in for Reese's spot for the next seven weeks. I think six weeks before, one week after. So he's going to be joining Ed and I um, on the Road to Gold Coast series. So if you want to listen to that, it's on Patreon. Uh, I hope people enjoyed the first episode. I thought Ed was good. Reese was good. Um, interesting yeah, dynamics there. And hopefully we can build something similar with Tim in the next couple of weeks. Also catching up with uh, Toby and Christian for the monthly. Coming up shortly. Toby, going to get to him in a second. Christian raced as well on the weekend over in Manchester. So it's all happening on the Patreon feed. You get it early. Oh, I tell you what, this week, good week to be a patron as well because you get shoe geeks early. Um, that's getting recorded tomorrow. And Croaks and I, it's going to be on the end of this episode when it goes out to the punters, but the Patreon supporters will get it tomorrow about lunchtime after we record it. Uh, the Craig Mottram interview Croaks, the uncut version. Yeah, I don't reckon you'll sleep tonight. Oh, I'm that nervous. I don't know how many interviews I've done, but this one I'm the most nervous about. Oh, he is, he wow. was the guy. I had posters of him on my wall when I was growing up. Yeah. What's the quest, What's the best question you've got for him right now? Oh, we've got a document here. Crokes and I have been like, mm. coming up with the notes. There's a lot of questions in here. Um, I don't know if this is the best one, but Crokes has got some good ones in here. But I actually want to ask him what would he be like as an athlete if he was an athlete now in the social yeah. media world? Because he was a, like a superstar, and like he seemed to love the post-race interviews. Obviously, that famous one at um, after the pre-classic. Like he seemed to really love that big dog. Give me some attention. I want to be the king of this kind of space. And he was always very good in front of the media. But I wonder what he would have been like if he could create his own media. Curate, yeah. I should have said there. But then, curate. but then on the but then on the flip side, like he was great at those interviews, but then. He never seemed to engage too much with the fans mm. outside of that. And he uh, mentioned on the coffee club interview that he did how he respected guys like Ollie that, you know, they're at a track meet and then after the track meet, there's a concert and he, yeah, they're out there like with, with the punters. Mm. Whereas Mottram admitted, he's like, that would have never happened back in my day. I would have been back at the hotel. Yeah. Cause he was, twi- he was like Twitter was around when he was competing and he wasn't really active on that. And so Facebook. yeah. That's one of the questions we'll give him. What do you, what's mm. yours, Crooks? What are you looking forward to asking him? Um, oh, maybe just I was guys that have been so successful at that level, like just some like anything he regrets, like whether it's like a tra- training error or racing. Um, he, also, his uh, when he came onto the scene for the 2000 Olympics, like that's a great story in itself mm. about how he made the team. Yeah, which um, a lot of our older listeners will know the story about him falling in the 1500 meter um trials yeah yeah, yeah. a a lot of our younger (coughs) listeners won't know that how he how he got his start at his first olympics i want to pick his brain as well on like he was around in that era where you know the the kipchoge on the track and then what kipchoge's gone to do in the marathon now and you know training partners of mo farah before mo farah got good mo farah still around now bikili like what does he think about all those guys and their longevity in the sport um, yeah. yeah, you got to hit him up about stories about Mo. Yeah, because there's some good ones I've heard. Do you reckon we'll um, yeah, we'll get some drug stuff out of him too. I reckon. Oh, I wasn't meaning that. I no, mean, no, no, yeah. no. Neither was I. I just mean like, do you you know do you have faith in all the stuff that you see? Like I've heard him talk about um, it was that World Champs in Paris, Croaks, 
when they ran sub thirteen for the last five k, he was doing the commentary for SBS. Yeah, and he was just like, "How how am I meant to compete against these guys?" Like, yeah. Anyway, we've just given away all our questions for the interview. That you, that's you, good you, though. You, yeah, you're not giving away. You're not getting giving, you're away, not getting the away the answers. But it's going to be um... it's going to be very much like because he's been doing a lot at the moment about the um the OAC stuff. So we're going to break it into two parts, like yeah. the the deep dive with Craig Mottram, and then uh, next week I think you'll hear like Craig Mottram and the OAC Oceana. Should we good? Let's uh, talk about some running news. Manchester 10K. Do you want to take us through that, Crocs? Yeah, so just a, a couple of international events. So the Manchester 10K was on yesterday. We had both Stewie and Jack Rayner racing. Stewie finished third in 28.35, and Jack was fourth in 28.40-ish. Um, the race was won by Eob Faneuil in 28.27, and Mark Scott was second in 28.31. In the women's race, Helen O'Beary backed up from Boston. Uh, she won in 31.14, beating Perez Jepchatir in 31.59. And then I don't know if you guys saw any of the Seiko Golden Grand Prix over in Japan yesterday on the um, World Athletics YouTube site. No, I didn't see it, but I just saw these results. Yeah, so... Many there, the crowd? Uh, no, there didn't seem to be a lot, but we had quite a lot of Aussies in this meet. So <coughs> we'll start with the women's 3,000. This was actually a really good race. Um, so Rose Davies finished second in 8.44, which was a PB. Izzy Bat Doyle was fourth in 8.53. There was a, like a group of maybe three that went out pretty quick, like low, well, pretty much like 8.50. Um, and Rose was back in the second pack. But then with like seven or by 700 to go, Rose had caught back up into the front pack and then actually went to the front. And she put a really good gap on the field and got caught with 200 to go. But then she held, um, whoever won the race, she held her off basically till 50 to go. Um, so, you know, the winner ran 8.43 and Rose was 8.44. So um, pretty good run there. Uh, Maddie Clark was fourth in the steeple. He was in the front pack for a lot of the race and just fell off late. Uh, ran 8:26. Uh, Madeline Murray finished fourth in the 1500 meters, 4:13. We also had a couple of guys like Jack Bruce um, and Jude Thomas in the 3K. Um, from memory, Jack ran uh, like 7:50 low, and Jude Thomas was just over eight minutes. They'd be going there on the way to Europe, wouldn't they? Don't know. Mm, uh, well, maybe not necessarily. Know. Japan's like not that far, so they've. Potentially come home. Mm, yeah, true. Um, that was only four seconds off Clarky's PB, so he's in shape. He's in shape. Great Ocean Road Marathon Festival, Moose. Yeah, uh, the the best race was probably on the Saturday. Andre Waring broke the broke the course record. He ran forty nineteen for the fourteen um, k. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate the distance is, but it, it's good. It goes up a climb and then comes back. Have you ever run that? No, I haven't. Really? I've only ever done no. the half at Great Ocean Road. No, I've never done this either, but it, they got a massive tailwind on the way home. He looked pretty good, so he ran 40.19. He beat Matt Buckle, 41.05, and Andrew Amor, he ran 41.14. That There's quality times there. And then in the ladies, Sarah Klein ran 45.08 to beat Stella Radford. Uh, Jesus, she was three minutes ahead, Sarah Klein. So Stella Radford, 48.05, and Lizzie, Lizzie Duncan, 50.41. And she's coming back from injury, so I think that was more like a longer run. Um, 
but yeah, pretty good, pretty good field really. If you take those two top six, there, they've done well there. Um, average weather for the weekend, so half marathon. Andre Waring, it's 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 a half marathon, but it's 23k really. Well, it is 23k. So he ran 78.50. Cam Smith, the um, the Run Strong Surf Coast Track Club man, he ran 81.52 for second, and then in third, Simon Hogan. You recognise that name? Former AFL footballer for the Cats? No, I don't. That's Simon Hogan. Played for the Cats uh, a few years ago. So he's from Warrnambool, I think. He's ran 82.12. That was pretty cool. I, like Someone recognised that as it was happening. Maybe the um, commentator or the MC called it over the mic. It was pretty, I was excited by that. Um, how many games his, did he play? Yeah, just looking at his LinkedIn profile. Oh, what are you LinkedIn you, profile? Why don't you just Google him? And it'll probably... I did. That's the first thing that came up. Simon Hogan, manager, KPMG, snowboarder, hiker, and runner. Doesn't even oh. say much about this footy. No, maybe you Google him then. Got AFL. 34, 182 centimetres. How many midfielder. games? Midfielder. Uh, he was born in Daniloquin. Denny. That's just up the road from Moama. Let's get a game number on him, please. Yeah, all right. Here we go. He played for six years, he, November to October. He was 57th overall in the 2006 <laughs> draft, and he played 22 games between 2009 and 2011. That's two years, not six years. Hey. Is that? No, he, no I'm saying... Oh, no. That's, on his LinkedIn profile, it says professional athlete for six years. Oh. Well, on... On his Wikipedia page, it's got playing career 2009 to 2011, Geelong, 22 games, yeah, 10 well, goals. Did they win the flag 2011? Simon spent six years with the Geelong Cats during one of the most successful periods of the club. Yeah, you can't be – that's Not a tough time to be issue, on the Cats. Tough time to be on the Cats. Uh, anyway, in the women's, Geelong runner Amy Fawcett, uh, previously Amy Carrick, ran 90-49 to win the race. Elise Beacom. Friend of the show, Surf Coast Track Club mm, runner. Long-time patron supporter. Yeah, she's uh, she's a Geelong cross-country runner. She ran 91.15 for s- second place. And then um, Kiara Sullivan ran 91.26 for third. The marathon was interesting, really interesting race. So the, the, the conditions, obviously, scream and headwind and very exposed out in certain sections. So the... Toby Mende won. So our man Toby, who runs Strong King, also Surf Coast Track Club King, the running company Geelong King, lives in Anglesey now, so local on the Great Ocean Road. However, did not do this very easily. <laughs> I've never seen a more ill man about 10 minutes after the race than Toby was. Like, he crossed the line and he was cooked. He was white as a ghost. And his lips were purple, and he was sick, so sick. So he's run 246.05 for the 44. He got to the front of the race with about 2 to 3K to go. So he was getting done at one point by about 40 seconds, about 10K out from the finish. Um, he was getting beaten by Baden-Westerweller. And he, so Baden-Westerweller finished um, 16 seconds behind... Toby at the finish. So after two hours and 46 minutes of running, he's only finished 16 seconds behind. Pretty pretty tight race. And Tom Hall, he'd actually caught up to Toby with 10K to go. So it looked like Toby was about to get passed into uh, for, for second place. So Toby rallied. 
so um so yeah toby wasn't too well after the race but yeah got got his three grand in the women's um sarah coulter run strong athlete which is one two for run strong for the marathon she ran three hours six minutes beat caitlin duncan three hours 11 and danny rogan three hours 12 so local athletes cleaning up down there Three of the four in the half and full marathon, local athletes. Love that. Didn't you just say it was a big community kind of race? Like, just that, that feel about it? So you'd expect the locals win it? Mm, three grand. It's been won by former yeah, world cool. championship representatives. Former local, yeah. It was also a local <laughs> resident. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's a pretty big race. You don't just chuck three grand up and no one shows up. Lucky Andre Waring rocked up, I reckon. Added some depth to those results. Yeah. What do you no, think about the double, though? It's well, risky, isn't it? Run a half cash. marathon after. Mate, he was untouched out mm. there. Yeah, it's just no jogging. one come near him. He ran with a t-shirt on or a long sleeve, maybe. So he's <laughs> if you're running with a long sleeve, no one's troubling you. Cam <laughs> Smith. Cam Smith did well to get that close to him, to be honest. That's a real tempo from Andre. Um, in the ultra marathon, which yeah, doesn't get a lot of um, athletes run it. Uh, it just it seems like a tack on. It's always been a tack on event down there. Do they pay um, big money for that as well? I think it's a third of the prize money of the rest. So I think it's maybe a thousand. Uh, but I like I've always sort of said this race should be Lawn to Apollo Bay, and then yeah, chuck in the half, which is Kennet to Apollo Bay. I, I just don't think you need the extras for this one. Like it's special enough as it is, town to town. Um, so Dion Finocciaro won in three hours 50. He was uh, 20 minutes ahead of Theo Langloy, four hours 10. Ben Harris, four hours 18 for third. In the um, ladies, just under five hours, Alice Hall was to win it. And then Tara Carson, five hours flat. Kathleen Judge, five hours six. Yeah, that's a long time to be out there in those conditions because that's, that's basically five hours of headwind. Oof. I oh, know. Just think about that. I'm going for a five-hour run, and the wind is going to be in my face at like 40 to 50k an hour pretty much the whole way. Would it be safe to say the wind is bad or the weather is bad for this event like 80% of the time? Seems oh, to be 90%. shocking most years. 90%, 90% yeah. 90%. These, yeah. That, that year Nick Earl got that tailwind, that was a fucking anomaly. And next time I see the weather on the Saturday going to be a tailwind, I'm entering that night. <laughs> or I'm just, I'm just going to rock up and run. I said that to the event director. I'm like, I'm, I've got you on, on my uh, speed dial now. And if I see conditions on Saturday that are looking like like a, a, uh, like a north easterly type wind, I'm come, I'm, I'm signing up. Because that'll be the easiest marathon you ever run. Same bloke croaks you said half an hour ago that he yeah. wouldn't be able to run the distance at the moment. Hey, with yeah. a tailwind, I could. <laughs> just be, just get yourself ready and then let the wind take you home. Well, let me take you. I'm going to whip around some states from, for some uh, last race results. Sydney Half Marathon, the runaway, I think it was. Sydney Half Marathon. My boy, Ed Goddard, got the win there, 65-21. Beat Benny St. Lawrence, 65-43. Your mate Croaks, um, James Nipperis in 68.20. So good to see Nipper still around the running scene. Marnie Ponton won the women's in 74.30. Neve Allen was second in 76.15. And Tara Prouse was third in 81.27. Some good money up for grabs there too, I think. Maybe $2,500 for the win. 
Uh, City to Casino down in Tassie. Jimmy Hansen got the win there, 36-22. Melanie Daniels got the win in the females. She was 43-30. Then there was the South Australian 10K champs. The Cox brothers were equal first in 30-19. They've been doing this a bit, haven't they? Like holding hands across the finish line. You've seen this this happening? Well, yeah. Croak's rolled through this before. I didn't get a chance to... Um address it so who gets the state championship if they both cross the line at the same time uh, i think they, I, I think know. i saw a photo with them both on the um oh they cut the middle first, enough first step no like well i guess they just hand out two golds it's it's a bit cringy isn't it like why do we have to do this like you're in a race what do you need to hold hands for you've hold hands your whole life well they're like, not what? twins are they there's an age gap between them jacob's older than riley I think so, but why aren't you racing each other? Like, I don't understand. Like, do you mm. not have any competitive element in your body? Even just make a make a decision that you know you're happy to run together for nine k, and then basically yeah, all bets all, all bets off for the last k. Yeah, I don't like it. I like people who race. I want to see some action at the finish. No one wants to see hand holding. Mm, you're talking about the crowd, the fans rock up, give up their Saturday morning to watch a 10k race, and then they get get that. I don't think the I don't think the South Australian athletes, like in general, like want their state represented like that either. Like <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the 10k. This is like Albert Park, right? Yeah, Could you imagine Albert Park? Fucking hell! You imagine this? Oh, Joel Tobin White and and Sam McIntyre. Oh, we're friends. We're like live together, I'm going to hold hands with you next through the finish line. Uh, you reckon that's happening? Nah. People that's swing punches at That's embarrassing for yeah. South Australia in my mind. <laughs> like, what kind of race is this? You either take it serious or you don't. We'll see what the inbox comes up with after those comments. Uh, Thomas <laughs> Down was third in 31.08. Brooke Hines got the win in the female section, 31.34. Zoe Tolan, the uh, Patreon supporter, was a big fan of our game of use, I think, back in the day, 35.39. Tiana Sieta was third in 35.47. The other race I quickly wanted to touch on, boys, the night of the 10,000-meter PBs was on over in England, Parliament Hill track, I think they run this at. Um, just looks bigger and bigger every year, this event, the motorbikes on the course, like on the track, sorry, with the video camera, like some real good footage. It was about six hours of um, live stream. I looked at it today. It's about five or six different uh, 10,000 metre races. Paul Cholimo got the win in the men's race in 27.12. Mizan Alem Adan, she got the win in the females race in 29.59, so broke 30. And interesting notes, they interviewed um, Chris Thompson at one stage there, because this was sponsored by On, and he said it's going to be a World Series and listed off three or four different uh, cities it's going to go to, and he mentioned Melbourne. And I thought, yeah. oh, do we know this? You haven't seen this. No? Is it going to be Zatapak? Oh, no. uh, was it? I don't know. I, I've definitely heard this, though. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard it in, like, whispers, but nothing, like, official like this. Like, I've heard, yeah. like, stuff There's behind the scenes. There's already been one. There's already been a couple. There was one in um, America already. Oh, was that the sound running one? No, it was a different one. It's called... Um, this will get announced, but yeah. I haven't be seen it this. being like the same branding and stuff though. Like I've seen on sponsoring different track meets and stuff in the US. I thought they were teaming up with like Sound Running doing a couple of their ones. Is I this think... series though, Brady, all just 10,000 meter races? Yeah, that's what he was talking about. He's like, we're picking this up and taking it to three or four different cities. And he said Melbourne was one of them. 
I like it. It's a good idea having one yeah. one night where it's the same distance and you just have different grades. Oh, but they like, like Heat Four was running like twenty nine thirty four, I reckon thirty five. Yeah. Like that's the deep fields. It's got a bit more international in their main race. Like at one point in time, I think it was like the UK big dogs like throwing it down. Mm. Um, whereas they don't seem to be there as much. Like you know, obviously Paul Chalimo, American Olympian. Um, so they're getting bigger that way, but it still seems like they got the depth of the UK guys going around. Yeah, I th- this is going to be a common thing around the world. I think they they're called on track night. That's the thing. Like that's the deal. And um, I'm not sure. Like there are pl- there are pretty big plans for for certain cities. Melbourne's one of them. I reckon you just got to stay tuned here, Brady. Will they do it at Zatapak? Or will oh, it be a I, separate I, meet? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not allowed to say anything. Yeah, so you know what's going on. Well, I know, but they haven't announced it yet. So, like, that that's going to be a big announcement, I reckon. I won't get involved in that. Okay. Yeah, well, Chris Thompson's announcing it on the live stream, if you want to yeah, check well, that out. Yeah, well, he said it. So we know it's happening in Melbourne now, don't we? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, the last bit of news, boys, is some doping news. Ronix Kipruto, the 23-year-old Kenyan who holds a world record for 10 kilometres on the road, has been charged with a doping violation by the Athletics Integrity Unit. Kipruto, he also won the bronze medal at the 10,000 uh, World Champs at Doha, it was 2019, was charged based on an abnormal reading from his athlete biological passport. The ABP monitors a series of biological parameters through a dedicated software program to pick up on indications of doping. That's what reads the definition from the Athletics Integrity Unit. He's coached by Brother Colm. Um, who's the same coach as like David Radisha? Pretty clean record. I think this is the first person to come out of uh, that stable who has tested positive, or hasn't tested positive, has had an abnormal reading on his biological passport. Huge news. It seems like when you just check it, when it comes up on Twitter, when the AIU tweets every uh, three or four weeks, you just expect to see another big name uh, go. This one, I guess, is a bit greyer. It's not as black and white as... as um, testing positive to a test, but still must be in a bit of strife if they've announced it and um, and pipped him. And I think there was mm. a 2000, I reckon they were going back to readings from, you know, a significant amount of years, like four or five years ago, to be able to find this abnormal result. Thoughts there, boys? Nearly fell off my chair when I saw this. Pretty big name in the sport. Yeah. Well, I reckon it's a bit of expect it, though, don't you? Sort of watch this space, though, because obviously he'll fight it. And I read somewhere as well that his manager was, like, backing him in to the point that if he is found guilty um, and the ban, like, stands, they're going to pay back, like, a heap of money. Okay. That's, that's how, like, confident they are. Yeah. Or some, oh. Something along those lines. This is often yeah. the one, because I think I read the same statement there, if you come back from altitude, it can have different readings and stuff as well. That's often what they go with when this happens. So, yeah, but they, they must be – there's got to be allowances for that. They're not going to – That's what I mean. You've got to trust the ALU too, don't you? Like they're not going to make these announcements if it's borderline, you've come back from altitude. There must be parameters in place. It can't be borderline to be making bans, surely. Yeah. But, I mean, we sort of saw from the Pete Bowl thing that maybe it is. Maybe there are a few borderline things that – go one way or the other like with someone interpreting it one way and yeah i don't know starting to starting to lose a bit of confidence in the old uh testing system lately you'd like to think with a uh world record holder though his pbs are like amazing as well 
What's that? It's 26 up, isn't it? 26 low he ran on the road. Yeah. Going to open it right now and a 57-minute guy for the half. So, um, yeah, watch this space to see what happens there with that appeal. Training talk, Croaks, listen to question. Yes, the training talk segment um, is back and it's sponsored by Gold Coast Marathon. Run your next PB at the Gold Coast Marathon in 2023, fast, flat and scenic. There is event distance for everyone from the full marathon to the kids two and four kilometre junior dash. Enter now at goldcoastmarathon.com.au. And thanks to the listeners, uh, we've got a couple of questions to go through tonight. So first one, what is the closest you would do a half marathon in a marathon build-up? That question comes from Nick Delaney. Hmm. Say a hard half marathon, is that what he means? Yeah, yeah. race, race a half, race a half during, during the prep. What's the closest you can go and still run a good marathon? Moose doesn't like this, do you, Moose? You I leave, don't. You leave it out. I do. I, I, I think there's just too much uh, mess around for the mm. um for the build up. So, look, if if it's got to happen, and sometimes it does have to happen, and sometimes people just love running, and so they go, I want to run a half marathon, and who am I to say don't do that? Um, but I I think that your marathon will go better for you if you don't run a a hard half within like seven to eight weeks of the race. That, yeah, that, if you're going hard, you need to recover from that. Like I well, know the shoes yeah. make a difference, but that's still a half week to a full week job to fully recover from a hard half. More than that, yeah. in my mind. Yeah. More, like, it takes me 10 days. You run a hard half yeah. marathon. Yeah. What do they say? It's a... Uh, day for, a every, day for mile. every mile. Yeah, well, that's what... That, I mean, that's what they say, right? But that's, that's a... Like, sometimes I've been so cooked from those half marathons... That like training's ruined for a decent three weeks just because I'm just not recovering and then I miss fitness. So you drop down into the race, taper. Like one week before, you might, you're probably not doing that, your longest, you're not doing a, a long run that you would normally do because you're going to taper into the race. You're going to miss a workout that week. You're going to do the run at a different intensity that you're run, running the marathon at. So it's not exactly specific training for what you're racing at or what you want to do well in the marathon for, like that sort of pace or intensity or heart rate. And then you, you're coming out of that with a, well, 60 to two-hour hard effort in your legs. For someone who's running an hour 45 as their half marathon, that's a really hard run. Um, and it's a long lot of volume at a higher intensity. So... Yeah, you, you, your workouts are compromised the next week. Um, you've often travelled for that half, so you're fatigued from that too. And then your long run the next week is probably not going to be as long as it normally would because you're still recovering. Get get it out of the program for me. I'm, I'm not a fan. Mm. I, like, I know it has to happen for some people, and that's fine if they want to compromise. Like, often I'll schedule training right up to the race, so the race will be done very heavy as on on very heavy legs. So they might do a marathon workout during the week. Then they'll do the race. Then they'll have an ex, then they'll have some serious recovery after it. That's the way I'll do it. And I will never, I won't allow it after like probably four weeks. That's the limit for me. Four weeks is, is the, uh, the closest I'd do one. Yeah. I'm the same with four weeks move. So like I personally, I, like if I had a major marathon coming up, like I wouldn't race a half in the lead up, um last year before gold coast i was meant to run launceston 10 
but I had that little calf issue in the week leading up. So I ended up then doing the half marathon at Launceston, probably what, four weeks out. Um, but as a, as a session, so, you know, I think I did like 5k at marathon sort of pace, 500 float. But I know here in Canberra, before Canberra marathon, there's a, a pretty popular half marathon, which is exactly four weeks out. And a lot of my athletes do that more so just because they want to do the event. And so we'll often have a heavy block um, up until probably like a week out. And then like training does get disrupted. So obviously the week before the half is pretty light um, and the week after the half is pretty light. And then I basically have one, one more big long run after the half and that's it. So the, the only benefit I see is that for people that maybe are, cooking their training a little bit there's a couple of weeks there other than the half where the training load does back off a little bit whereas sometimes if all you're doing is training and you just get a little bit too excited and each week needs to be a little bit harder and a little bit longer than the previous week you can get cooked sort of four weeks out which um you don't get that i suppose if you're racing a half four weeks out because you've got like an easy week before an easy week after and it just backs things off so I think you can get away with it, but no, yeah, no closer than four weeks out. Depends where you're at. Yeah. I like them, as you said, like what you did at Launceston, and using them for workouts. Like it's a great way to get a workout and practice picking up cups or taking gels or having that uh, morning race time like routine nailed. Like you know, it's not like you're doing a workout and you get to choose what time you start. Like you gotta, you gotta be nervous and energy there, and it's good to practice before race day. I know a few guys at Great Ocean Road, same thing. Six weeks out from Gold Coast, do a workout, practice a marathon pace. Um, you're right to train on the Thursday, Friday afterwards. If I have an athlete racing a half four weeks out and they're in a heavy marathon block, I always say to them, don't be disheartened if the half doesn't go that well because you've still got that marathon you know training in your legs it's not the it's not the a goal and so i've had sort of 50 50 success rate with people running a good half four weeks out others you know are, are still a bit tired from the training up leading up to that but then they bounce back for the marathon four weeks later yeah, you don't necessarily want to be in great half marathon shape no. because you're kind of training for something different. Like the yeah. marathon is a different intensity. It's it's a different like um, it's a different rhythm. Yeah. And if you spend a lot of time at threshold, like doing all these threshold workouts, it means that you probably haven't done enough marathon specific stuff, like at that sort of zone below which is yeah. where we run the marathon. So I always, like, sometimes I get scared if someone has a blinder in the half. I'm like, oh, maybe we've got, maybe we've fucked this training up a little bit. <laughs> maybe we haven't done enough of what we need and we've done too much of what's worked here. Hey, another question regarding the Gold Coast croaks. Does Gold Coast have cups or, or bottled water? Yeah, that's from come Tris. from Tris, yeah, 1983. That's a good question. And this is one thing that I do like about Gold Coast compared to some of the other major marathons around the place is every year I've been up there, it's been water bottles. And the thing I love about that is you're pretty much guaranteed of getting the whole 200 mils or 250 in your stomach. Whereas if it's just cups of water, um, you're not going to get much from the cup because most of it ends up over your face or your head or your or your chest so uh, i love the fact that there's generally water bottles at the gold coast good to know thanks the gold coast uh, marathon for supporting the inside run podcast moose on the loose 
question purchase of the week? Oh, yeah. Well, we could have done the hand-holding uh, finishes, but we're going to do we're going to do um, the marathoner who who's finding the marathons too easy now, and so he needs a new challenge. Uh, so now he runs ultra marathons, or she does. There's a bit of a common theme lately that I've noticed, whether it's been people in store or through the expo over the weekend and around the race. It's like, oh, what, like the question, you know, what do you pick the ultra marathon to do for? Why are you doing the 60? And they said, oh, yeah, well, I did Melbourne Marathon and like I found it pretty easy. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll go up to the next thing. I'll just go longer. Um, and as if like they've clocked the marathon <laughs> and it, it's just, they've done that. So there's no more challenge there anymore. I've always like, there's the, there's completing a marathon, which is brilliant. And I love like people do it. Uh, like it's a massive achievement to finish a marathon. And I saw that on the weekend, but that person isn't finishing going, Oh, that was pretty easy. What I'm going to go longer next time. Um, they're just stoked to finish if you get comfortable finishing a marathon and you're going, oh, that was easy, then why don't you aim to go faster? Like why are we all of a sudden not worried about improving our time over the marathon? Um, it just seems like there's a there's a fade away from from sort of challenging ourselves with, with time. And uh, now we just want to challenge ourselves with distance. Um, have you guys, you, you might not notice that as much considering you're in like a, a training group and, and you, don't, you don't really get exposed to this type of recreational kind of uh, runner crowd where you see this attitude a little more. Oh, like I know what you're saying. Like there's people that come to me for coaching and like they're not running many kilometres a week and they always want to pick out like the furthest distance possible. And I'm like, well, based on the amount of running that you're currently doing, we're not in position to get you fit enough to run a 60k race in however many weeks. So you're not going to be prepared for 60k. Which, like, why would you want to do it if you're not prepared for it? And so I'm like, hey, why don't you start with like 10k and half marathon because the amount of volume that you're doing per week is probably more suited to those distances. And then over time, you're going to get fitter, you're stronger, you can run more kilometers a week, and then you can actually prepare properly for these ultra events. So I couldn't think of anything worse than going into some of these like super long events, not prepared for them. Yeah, yeah, me either. But it, it, a lot of the time it's not, they haven't trained, they haven't prepared properly. Like you said, they just, it, it, they do the minimal training and it's like, let's just get it done on the weekends. I'm not, I don't know how you enjoy that. It doesn't seem enjoyable in, in any way, shape or form. No. Good one. What's coming up, boys, to finish up the show? Road to Gold oh. Coast, step two. Recording Wednesday. Expect that Wednesday night, Thursday morning, patrons. What do you got, Croaks? Uh, big interview in the morning. Oh, yeah, big one. Uh, might get back to work later in the week. Um, yeah, and then hopefully a little bit of a little bit of jogging. We'll see. Mm. Be careful. Moose, I'm scared about that. Yeah, yeah I've tried. I like. I, I thought yeah. this was it for you. I'm like, this could be it. Crooks yeah, might yeah. never run an intense K in his life again. Well, I've been thinking about you all the last couple of days, Crooks. I'm like, well, been chatting, yeah. been chatting to your boy Brett Coleman, Moose, and he's like, just take take Andre's advice. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. 
And what's Andre said? Go for a run. Well, we'll find out. Hmm. I reckon he. I reckon he will. Based on all the results that have come back. I reckon we get Andre on the show. I've talked to Brett about it in the past. Yeah, right. Yeah, get him on. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the heart. Oh, I'm like, not smart enough to interview a guy like that, Brett. Like, yeah, and I reckon he's a busy man too. <laughs> yeah, but still, a lot of people be interested. A lot of runners, heart-related hmm. stuff. Uh, Moose, I'll what are you doing? Next, I'll ask him next time he's at our long run. Oh, yeah, yeah, all right. That'd be good because there are a ton of questions. Like even now, like I'm like, hey, can um, that troponin or whatever – you know, is 185, although the normal level is 26, is 185 really that dangerous if you're a distance runner sort of thing? And yeah. and, and, and the running is the reason that's causing it. Like, yeah. Maybe ask him that in your own time. Oh, it's right. going to be a free consult for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure the listeners need to know questions that technical. <laughs> Doha Diamond League's coming up, 28th of May as well. Rabat. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen start list for that. Mm, might see Stewie back there. Good to see him finish at that other one. Yeah, he's bounced well, back from his, come, his DNF. Come third. Come third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's third. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, and watch him interview. That's coming as well. Anything else, boys? Moose, you tell him what you're doing? Oh, working. Working. Mate, you would have no idea. But I work was... full time. I know what it's like. But... You don't really do work full time. I've seen what I've been around teachers <laughs> a lot. They're never really working that much. Like it's it's babysitting. Twenty six ten year olds, Moose. Twenty six yeah, of them. You just go on bus trips to fucking like bus trip, that's the hardest stuff. Excur- excursions. <laughs> oh. I'm not having that. Kid yeah, if you're in charge of twenty six kids, if something goes wrong, it's on you. Yeah, I'm not saying I would enjoy it. I'm just saying that it's Stry, like... High stress, don't high pretend, stress. Don't pretend like you have a job like mine. You know what? Don't answer back to you. Shoes. Imagine, <laughs> imagine working with shoes all day, Crooks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they don't sneeze. They don't answer back to you. It's all good. Do you ever get alphaed by like footy players and stuff because they're bigger than you? Footy like, players? You know, like a year 10. 10-year-olds. Oh, well, I work at a primary school. Oh, all right. Oh, yeah, I've, I've had, I work at a high school. I've had plenty of attitude. <laughs> yeah, I moved, you know, I moved a, um, that's right, a guy had, a kid had his phone, not allowed to have phones, and I told him to put his phone away, and then this other kid back chatted saying, well, what's in your pocket? And I was just like, all right, move over there. And so I moved him, and then halfway through the lesson, he moved back, and then he, like, I said, all right, I'm happy for you to stay there. And then he gave me some sort of lip. I said, do you want to move back to where I put you before? And he's like, well, the only way I'm moving there is if uh, if you physically move you me. me. Yeah, and then oh, I sort of – So then I turned around and I just ignored it. And then he followed up with, what, you don't think you're big, <laughs> big enough to move me? <laughs> and I was just like, righty-o. <laughs> What do you do there? This a current guy, affair, Moose, we, I reckon we see an episode with Croak's belting a student. That, that, that's where you just move it up the chain. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Yeah, you just that. pick up the phone. He's called just, the yeah. level coordinator. Yeah. Oh, really? Because like... <laughs> well, what am I going to do? Go and pick him up? <laughs> oh, we know you couldn't do that. <laughs> no, he, 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 was, he, he, was bigger, that. he was bigger than me and he was in year eight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas, let's wrap right. it up. Enjoy this uh, part one Craig Mottram interview, ladies and gents. See you next week. See ya. See ya. Run your next PB at the Gold Coast Marathon in 2023. Fast, flat, and scenic. There is an event distance for everyone. 
from the full marathon to the kids' two and four kilometre junior dash. Enter now at goldcoastmarathon.com.au. All right. This week's guest on the Inside Running Podcast is one of, if not the greatest Australian distance runner of all time. He's been to four Olympic Games and had a bit of a cult following throughout his running career. He has a World Championships bronze medal and the Commonwealth Games silver medal. He's also known as Buster and the Big Mazungo and now the head coach of OAC Oceana. Welcome to the Inside Running Podcast, Craig Mottram. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a long time coming, this one. Been hassling the guys at at ON and the OAC to get me on this podcast because it's been a, a dream of mine to chat with you about all things running and, and the OAC. I don't know about that, but you're definitely one of our most requested uh, guests. We've been going for 290 consecutive weeks. We've had um, had a lot of people talk about you in their interviews over the years. I remember Chris Wardlaw's interview. It was good to hear his kind of input into your running career. And we had Collis and Jeff Risley and all those kind of guys along the uh, journey, Benita. So it's actually good to hear you actually talk, just not other people talking about you. All good things, I hope, although I'm they pretty were. confident there were some bad things in there as well. I'd be lying if I said I'd listened to many of your podcasts. I haven't listened to any of them, but I've got, what, 290, you say? Yeah, so I've got plenty of, to catch up on. All flights of good listening coming up. <laughs> That's good, Craig. We uh, we usually start the show by going through people's PBs. So we're going to start with the 800, 152.9, but I'm guessing you probably closed a lot of 1500s and 5Ks actually quicker than that over the years. Yeah, uh, possibly. That That's the official um, 800 PB. I think that was at a Victorian Championship B final. I didn't even make the A final of that B. Victorian Championships many years ago. I think I did um, throw a tantrum prior to that and didn't actually want to run, so it wasn't my best performance. But I have I have split 145 in training um, at, uh, at St. Mary's in the middle of a workout. So that is my official 800 PB, but I do think I, I could have gone faster potentially had the the opportunity to race a good one come up. Was it just the fact that you'd always run the 15? You'd never look to do like a 800 at a Diamond League or anything like that? Well, I probably wouldn't have got a start in a Diamond League or a Golden League, I think they were back back when I was running. But I just, that didn't really suit uh, the type of athlete I was. I didn't feel it was necessary to, to run a good 800 to be competitive in the 5K, which was my primary sort of event, I suppose. 1,500 and 5K go hand in hand to a certain degree, but 800 was probably stepping down a bit too too far for me and I would have struggled with that with that speed to run it competitively. Yeah, the 1,500, 333.9 at Zurich. Any fun stories about that one? Not really. Um, I, I, I ran 333, 334, you know, in that sort of ballpark for, for a lot of my career when I was when I was going well. I never really attacked the hard 1500 to run fast. I, we did try to do one actually um, in Berlin after the 2005 World Championships in Helsinki. We lined one up with um, Daniel Komen. Not There's been several Daniel Komens, but this one was um, the 1500 guy that used to race um, Hisham El Garouge, Daniel Komen. So he was very good, 326 guy. Um, but I hurt my hamstring doing that 800 in 145, funnily enough, in training at St. Mary's the week before. Um, so I couldn't warm up and didn't get to run. And he went and ran 328, I think, that day off the front. So that was an opportunity that went missing by trying to do a super session. There's a lesson for you all out there. Trying to do a super session and run too fast in training and did my hammy and couldn't race a 1500. And my PB still stands at 333. Yep. The mile, Oslo, 348.9 think this was in the build-up to 2006 Com Games? 
not 2005 no. World Championships. World Come Champs. on, I knew, this, I knew it was one of the big races coming up. You're working on your speed. You knew you had to close hard in the last four laps. Yeah, yes and no. Um, funnily enough, I split 331 in that through the 1500. So um, back to my 1500 PB, it's, it's probably not a true reflection of, of what um, of the mile, I suppose. But um, before the mile, I was obviously getting ready for World Champs in Helsinki, the, the 5K. But um, I actually fell over in Bushy Park where I was training before that hurt my foot. Flew to Ireland for a few days to get treatment. Went over um, late the night before the mile in Oslo off four or five days of not much running and then went and ran 348 for the mile fresh. So there's another lesson. Going into races fresh is probably better than going in uh, a bit overdone. And and some of actually some of my best runs have come off being either injured or sick when I freshened up. Yeah, right. Uh, the 2K, which we don't usually talk about 2Ks on this show, but pretty significant one, 450. You did this one. Uh, it's a national record. This was before the Commonwealth Games in 2006. Yeah, you got that one right. Yeah, um, that was at, uh, at the old Olympic Park in a couple of weeks before Com Games in 06. Um, and probably one of my better records, actually, that that one. And, and it, it'd be hard. Well, it won't be hard to beat. Stewie and these boys will, will beat it if they wanted to run it. But it's not an event that's frequently run. So I think it may stay around or has stayed around for this long just purely because no one does it. Yeah, yeah, pretty rare to see a fast 2K happen. Uh, the 3K, 732, which was yep. a national record before Stewie got it. It was, yep. That was in the World Cup in 2006 against mm. Kenanisa Bakili. So um, another good race, um, 732. It was more about trying to win the race and run fast back in, in my time. Um, we didn't have pacing lights or anything like that to, to sort of target times. We just raced the scenario. and um, I think we were through four laps in four minutes. Um, with Kenanisa taking out the pace and then it slowed for a few laps and then I took it up with 700, 800 to go um, and, and ran home strongly. Definitely could have run faster that day. I watched it yesterday. There was a fair bit of celebration going on with 30, 40 metres to go. I think, um, I, yeah, well, the next one you're going to talk about is probably the two mile, but I think both in the two mile and the 3K um, races, for me in most of the races it was more about the competition and being excited about trying to win things than than run fast it was very rare that i actually went out to time trial and try and and run a you know a fast time so the the times that i've run generally have all been in head-to-head competitions with another athlete trying to win a race and on that craig we're going to get to it later but we'll go there now like that world cup win over um bikili like i think there was a bit of did he say afterwards that he was sick? Like, was he complaining and stuff? Like, trying to say, like, he wasn't at his fittest, but then he took it out in 60 seconds as well? Like, was it a bit of a cop-out from him? Well, I, I don't know what he said afterwards. I haven't heard that. But he wasn't initially in the 3K. He, I think he was initially in – I don't know if there was a 5K. He was in a different event. And then I think the day before decided he wanted to run the 3K because he thought it was an easier field um, and then took it out in four minutes. We thought that that would be the case, that he'd go fast to try to – get away and then just be able to roll home easily. And so I just went with it and I was in really good nick at that point. And um, yeah, it just came easy. And for people like not familiar with the World Cup, because we've got a lot of new listeners who are new to the sport and I'm not sure if it still happens, but it was one representative per like region. So you'd go and represent Oceania in that field. Does it still happen, Crux? Do you know? No, I don't think it does. Yeah. Not in the, not in the point system. Because it used to be a point system, wasn't it, Craig? Uh, you know what? I actually don't know how they chose who represented 
who from whatever region, to be quite honest. But you're right, it was one athlete per region, so represented Oceania. Um, you had a European athlete, African athlete, um, so on and so forth. So there was never massive fields. And, you know, outside of Kennedy, so I won it in 2002 as well in, in mm. Madrid. So the fields were never that strong, if I'm being honest, in terms of who actually did it. It was more of an opportunity for those that were still fighting on at the back end of a season to have another race. And there was big money. Yeah. Um, big prize money for the for those athletes that were prepared. I think even last place got three or four thousand dollars. So uh, for those athletes that were willing to stay around and race, it was a good opportunity. And obviously, this one, Kenanisa, decided to have a run, and I took my opportunity to to run well and compete as good as I could, and and got away with the win. I remember it blowing up on the Let's Run like forums, like you beating him and stuff. Like people just absolutely loving it. Like it was a huge. Like did it feel like that at the time? Like a huge win for you in your career. It did. I mean, I, we'd had some big things on already with World Champs in 05, Com Games in 2006, early on in Melbourne. So for me, um, the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, as good as they were and as well as I ran in the 5K, the 1500 obviously didn't go uh, as smoothly, smoothly as we'd hoped. So that became a really big priority for me in the back half of the season was to focus on something else and, and defending the World Cup title became my single focus for that season. So coming up and running there. And I remember before the day before that race, um, my coach at the time said to me, I think Kenanese is going to run in the uh, in the 3K. It was actually in a press conference, actually. He said, Kenanese is going to run in the 3K. And I said, I don't really mind who runs in it. Um, I'm going to try to beat him anyway. And, and that was always the attitude that I took into races, whether it was a World Cup or not, or Kenanese or whoever. Um, it was always trying to win the race. And then the times and all the other bits and pieces come second to that. Yeah. The two-mile, 8.03, pre-classic, the mullet, the post-race interview, the um, one of the most iconic kind of wins, I suppose, of your career. Celebration. Biggest, well, that one, yeah, because it was a pre, um, and there's a lot of Steve Prefontaine's family actually go to that meet and watch it, and I got to meet a few of them afterwards, and they would they just loved the fact that I enjoyed trying to win races, and when winning them, enjoyed it even more, um, and and showed people and played up with the crowd and all of that sort of stuff. So that was that was really good. Um, good fun but the th biggest thing to come out of that's biting me on the ass significantly at the moment um, is the mullet and the issues that I've got I got four kids three boys and I took two of them to the hairdresser yesterday and all they wanted was a fucking mullet um, <laughs> and I said no you can't get it the school won't allow it and they said yeah but dad you had it and then yeah. they show me pictures on YouTube with a mullet yeah. and you can't defend yourself so it's um, yeah I was running well but the hair the haircut certainly left a bit to be desired that was good. You were ahead of the time too. Look at all the AFL boys now. Everyone's rocking the same haircut. I think it's one of those things, Brady, that just it comes around every decade. <laughs> like flares, you know, or cuts in your jeans and that sort of stuff. The hairstyles, they sort of go full circle every 10 to 15 years and it's back in now and then in 10 years everyone will look back at photos of themselves and shake their head and wonder what, what were they <laughs> uh, Up to the 5K, 12.55 at Crystal Palace. I think a go under 13 maybe seven or eight times. Mm. That was the fastest one. Um, I don't know exactly how many times, but a, a few. Uh, and again, the same situation. It was always in, in races. So that the two mile was against Kenanese's younger brother, Tiruku Bakili at, mm. at Prefontaine. Then this one in, in 04, I think I ran 12.55 against Gabra Selesi. The same thing. It was a head-to-head -head competition um, with him. And that was the first time, funnily enough, I broke 13 minutes. I went from 13.03 in Ostend in, in Belgium uh, to 12.55 in the next race and racing against uh, Gabra Selesi. And then every other time I'd, I'd run under 13 minutes was against another athlete trying to, you know, trying to win the race. And ironically, I never won a race in under 13 minutes. So 
Uh, it was always the second place, I think, I finished. Every time I broke 13 minutes, I came second. Yeah, but you're always there, though, and that was probably that, like that competitive yeah, like, that spirit. Yeah, that doesn't mean much. Yeah, but it, it did at the time a bit. Like, you just knew you were going to have a crack. Like, you are going to be there at least. Like, you're not down the back straight when the race is finishing off. Well, actually, I, what, there was a scenario in 2003, maybe, when Ken and Issa Bikili ran 12.37 for 5K um, and broke the world record in um, Hengelo. I was in that race and ran 13.10, which was the Australian record at the time. And I remember watching him finish, and I was halfway down the back straight. So I remember looking to my left, and he's finishing in 12.37, and I ran 13.10 and broke the national record. And thought, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, yeah. you know, this guy nearly lapped me, and I've run 13.10. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the 10K, 27.34. Any fond memories yeah. of that one? Pretty close to the Australian record, what the boys are still running these days. Not, not really very fond memories of many 10Ks, to be quite honest. That was getting up to the upper limit of, of my probably more mental capacity than anything else. I just found 25 laps on the track really, really tough to get excited about. Um, you know, I sort of needed to be in, inside of the finish relatively quickly to, you know, to get excited about the competition and things like that, where 10K just went on a bit long. And I think that was in Stanford, that, that when I ran 27.34 and I finished third or fourth or something, I think, in that race. But... Um, never ran a really good 10K, to be honest. Um, but, you know, it's a means to an end for, for someone that's more 3K, 5K, which is probably where my distance, the, the best distance for me sat. Yeah. You ran a couple of good road road 10Ks, though, didn't you? Like in um, New York? Yeah. In New York, healthy kidney 10K. Um, I ran, I won that a few times. I, I ran in Spain a couple of times over 10K. The road's a bit different to running 25 laps of the track. You can sort of entertain yourself a bit. Um, you're looking at different things. You can sort of settle in, and it, it moves a bit quicker in terms of the the, the mental process of, of racing. Where the 10k, you know, you, you're running the first 15 laps, and you look up, and you still got double digits to go, and you've had enough at that point. And you're like, yeah, seriously. It's uh, for me, I found that really challenging. Some some athletes are able to switch off more so, but for me, that engagement in competition and that competitive desire with you know, positioning yourself and excitement around the last, the closing kilometre and that sort of stuff was really what got me um, into into the competitions. And when that was 25 minutes away, I found that pretty tough to, you know, to, to get into. Do you enjoy watching the 10Ks these days, like now that you're not competing? Because they've kind of, they, they wind them up now and they kind of, back in your day, it used to be maybe a bit harder from the gun where it seems to be more like a sit and kick over the last two or three laps these days. We, funnily enough, we were talking about this in LA at Mount Sac um, a couple of weeks ago because there were a few 10K races to be had later on after the the, pro, the main program had finished, and that was about 10.30 p.m. at night. We were sitting there going, who, who would in their right mind come and watch two 10Ks at 10.30 p.m. at night? So do I enjoy watching them? I enjoy the strategy and I enjoy watching the athletes because I know them and I understand the feeling and all of that sort of stuff. Do I think it's good for athletics commercially and things like that to have 10Ks on the, on the TV? I think it's... Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough question to answer in terms of what the priorities need to be and how we, we sort of capture the essence of what track and field is in a small package that excites people. But um, we threw around ideas like getting athletes to run 8K on the treadmill under the grandstand and then release them, you know, on the track for the last 2K when the excitement happens and stuff or get them to run out in the, you know, around yeah. Albert Park Lake a couple of times and then bring them into the track and finish off there uh, so that it could run in conjunction with the rest of the program because it's a big big chunk of time to actually put uh, you know in the middle of an athletics program and, and to try to fit it in so from that point of view I, it's challenging um 
but I do enjoy watching. One of the ones I watched many years ago was 2003 World Championships in Paris. I was actually commentating it with Bruce McAvaney and Dave Colbert and a few of these guys. And um, it was Gabra Celesi, Bakili, and they were, it was Pat. Shaheen, Shaheen. Shaheen, all these guys. Yeah. And I remember um, Gabra Celesi wasn't in great nick and Kenanisa Bakili kept waiting for him and bringing him up because he wanted to get Ethiopia 1-2-3. And I think ultimately they did. But they split the last 5K of that 10K in 1257 in Paris. Mm. And I remember um, one of the commentators leaned over to me and said, what are your thoughts on that? And I said, well, that rules out the 10K for, <laughs> you know, for most normal people because really how do you compete with that? Um, mm. You know, that their aerobic capacity, their ability to pick up the second half of a 10K, it's not something that someone of my size anyway in particular could do physiologically. It was just, it was just really, really challenging to see how good those guys are and then actually have to psychologically go out and run against them knowing that they could run faster than you could for the second half of a 10K um, that you could do over 5K. So it has, for athletes that are not necessarily built the same way, it, it becomes really difficult. Do you think as well, talking about like the TV package, it's hard for the general population to understand how actually good and impressive and quick that is watching it on Absolutely. TV? Absolutely. Yeah. And they make it look so easy, even the marathon. When um, until you actually get on a treadmill or try to run next to what Elliot Kipchoge did when he wrote, broke two hours, people find it really difficult to understand how, how fast that is. Even if you relate it back to kilometres per hour over the ground, it, it's quite hard to, to comprehend. And that's why I think um, running 5K in 1255, people don't quite understand that. Even an 800 in 145, people don't understand that. But when you run a lap of the tan in 10.08, the majority of people in Melbourne have run the TAN. They understand what that's like, and that's, that becomes more relatable. So one of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges with our sport uh, and what I do now in terms of our business and everything else outside of the OAC is, is encouraging kids to participate in track and field, but actually getting them to appreciate and understand how exciting and fantastic the performances are by giving them that experience. So stepping out what 18 and a half metres is in triple jump by putting a bar up to two metres 40 in the high jump for the men and, you know, 205 for the women and all of that sort of stuff. And people's eyes light up when they see it and they go, far out, someone can jump that far or run that quickly or, you know, all of that. and on the TV it's hard to do that. Pole vault, six metres far out. Unless you've actually gone and sat by a pole vault mat and watched someone jump six metres, you don't get it. You don't necessarily get that same appreciation. So how do we bring people to the track and actually get them to watch the sport and appreciate how awesome it is is one of the biggest challenges we need to overcome. At least um, park, park runs probably made 5K times a little bit more relatable for yeah for the general public. You know, a lot of people there rolling 20 minutes and they go, oh, yeah, elite guys are breaking 13. It's so, like, oh, okay, yeah, that's impressive. 100%. Yeah, people need to be able to, to grasp the concept and, and have a feeling for what, um, you know, the level of, of performance, I suppose, that's happening at the highest level of track and field. Yep. Craig, I don't have – there's nothing on your profile for half marathon. Did you run one? <laughs> Uh, I never ran one, not, not competitively. Yeah, okay. I ran the Great North. Great North, North like that, yeah. I did, yeah, but just as a long run after running yeah. the Great City Games or whatever they had up there. Um, so never a competitive half marathon, no. Yep. Uh, the marathon, though, 228.39 London, 2016, trying to qualify for your fifth Olympics at Rio. Um, yeah. The training went well, didn't it? But the result, obviously, not what you were after. Training went well, Um I was, I was working with Chris Wardlaw at this point in my career. It was the back end of my career, to be to be fair. Um, and I had no no excuses, no reasons to not run. I think I needed to run 2.13 or 2.14 or thereabouts to qualify. 
Liam Adams had just run the night before in somewhere else in Europe and had run two two fourteen or something like that. So that was the sort of time I needed to hit, um, and went through halfway in sixty seven oh one, but was already in a bit of trouble. I started to get pain in my hip and then down in the Mahammy and. You know, at 20K, when those things are starting to happen, going across London Bridge, it becomes tough. And um, that was always going to be, if if I didn't qualify, it was going to be the end of my running, you know, professional career. That I decided before that, if it went well, I'd go on to Rio and run and then finish up. If I didn't, then that would be the end of it. And I knew at about 20, 21K halfway that I, I was going to struggle to run the time. Um, so... I switched my sort of focus from trying to run as fast as I could to just trying to finish and not opting out and going back to the hotel and, and doing those sort of things because I wanted to enjoy the last hour or so of, of my running career. My parents were over there. My brother was there. Um, so ironically, the time wasn't great. In fact, it was was pretty ordinary. 228 is not a super competitive marathon time for an elite guy. Um, but the experience of doing it really helped close out my career. So most people would look at that and go, oh, disappointing. But for me, to be able to actually have a full stop in the end of your career and know that physically you probably could keep going if you wanted to, but mentally I just didn't want to do it at the same level anymore, I think is a really important part of me being able to let go of the high-end running and move into other areas of my life. And I think a lot of athletes don't necessarily get that. They finish because they're physically broken or, um, you know, for whatever reason, they, they just can't physically do it anymore. For me, there was nothing physically wrong, albeit... I just got tired in that race. It was more an emotional and mental thing for me where I just didn't have the desire to want to really take myself to the well anymore. And there's no better place to find that out than halfway in a marathon. So for me, I think, yep, time's not great, but the the actual conclusion to my career was a really fitting way to go out was to, to finish in London and, and know that I was done. Did you get emotional over the last couple of Ks? I did actually. I got really cold, funnily enough, because it was, it was a cold day. And you think when you go running, you sort of stay warm. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's energy systems or running out of fuel or whatever it is. But the last five or six k, I was freezing, and I remember just running down along the river and looking for my parents, who who I couldn't find. There's so many people watching, and I was going to ask my dad if I could borrow his jacket because I was I was actually really cold. And then when I got to the end, um, it was emotional because Chris Wardlaw was there, and um, and fun, well, not funnily enough, but I finished, and the first person I saw was a, a drug tester came up to me, gave me one of those tin foil wrap things. Mm. And his first words I heard after that was, he looked at his watch and he said, geez, Craig, you kept me waiting, 2.28. And I was like, mate, you're lucky I don't knock you on your ass right now. Seriously, I've just battled away for two and a half hours and you're giving me a hard time and then asking me to do a drug test. And anyway, I walked off to get drug tested and was sitting having a chat with Chris and he said, oh, do you want a Powerade or whatever? I said, you know what, I just want a cup of tea. I'm freezing. Um, so I sat there and had a cup of tea and a biscuit in London waiting to be drug tested, chatting about running and I then had to go and answer a few questions, you know, from media around what that meant and everything else. And I wasn't in the position to say that was it, you know. Uh, I just wanted to sort of do that in my own time. And I, I don't think announcing retirement is, is something any athlete should be, you know, having to do. I think you just transition into another part of your career and you're always going to be a runner. But answering questions around obviously Rio and not being able to go there and everything else was, uh, was emotional, absolutely. And to know in myself that that was probably going to be the end of it, um, was sad but a relief in some respects I think and then to have my mum and dad and my brother and everyone else there was was really cool and Chris uh, Wardlaw was great but off the back of that one of the so that was fantastic I do have to tell you this story because probably the biggest not the biggest regret but it would have been the ultimate full stop in the back end of, of my career when I was leaving I actually left 
um, that, that night I flew back to Australia. So I went to the airport um, and I was lucky enough to have a friend who'd got me first class tickets on, um, on Emirates. So we had an apartment. I had an apartment on the plane. And as I was checking in at Heathrow, the late Shane Warne was checking in next to me. Um, and I'd met him before at the functions and stuff, but we didn't really know each other. We sort of nodded and said, hey, going. He got on the plane, went to his apartment. I got on, went to my apartment. And then we got off in Abu Dhabi or wherever we did. He went off with his person. I went off with my person. We got back on, got to Melbourne, and we were both waiting to get our bags at the carousel. And he came over to me and he goes, oh, Craig, so you ran the marathon. I said, yeah. And he goes, how'd it go? And I said, oh, not great, Shane. You know, it was a bit disappointing. He goes, shit, I wish you'd told me that in London. We would have got on it all the way home. And that would have been <laughs> best if that would have yeah. been the great into your career ever 24 hours first class on a plane with Shane Warne just Shane all over it. we might not have ever got we might have never got home but that was that's probably one of the biggest regrets that I have was not to actually say to Shane at the airport hey let's go and have a few drinks and have a good time so anyway that's uh that was a fun story good story and then talking about your family like you come from very good crop didn't you like your mum and dad were both um like was your dad soccer and your mum hockey yeah. you know I know your brother played basketball for the boomers I think um, so dad was a soccer player. He played for Wimbledon many, many years ago. So born and raised in London in a little place just outside of Putney, central London. Mum, Scottish, um, and then moved to London, north of London, um, to a little place called Norwich. Uh, was a county hockey player, ran track a bit in high school. Um, I have asked her how quickly she ran a 400. She tells me she's run 56, whether or not that's true or not. Uh, would have been quite impressive back then when she was running. Um, but genetically, yes, obviously, um, some good stock. My old, my older brother uh, lives in London. He's a financial analyst for HSBC, been there 25 years, uh, run a few marathons. He's run, he's broken three hours once, I think, for the marathon. So he's uh, just your general, you know, all-round athlete. Um, my younger brother, Neil, is a, was a professional basketballer, played for the Melbourne Tigers, won a few championship rings with them, played for the Boomers, won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in 2006, Still tells me that he's the only one in the family with a major championship gold medal, which is true. So he's got me there. He's got me there. Um, and growing up, we were always competitive. You know, we were 14 months apart. So each of us are 14 months apart. So mum had three boys under three um, and very competitive, very athletic, um, very driven, all three of us in different areas now. But I think that's a big contributor to the success we've all had in our respective careers in terms of you know nature over nurture and all of that sort of stuff I think we were we were lucky we were blessed with both we were, were all genetically talented but then put in an environment where we were ultra competitive and and we nurtured that sort of desire to want to be great and I think that's you know that that'd be a massive part of the reason I had so much success in running uh, and I'm still so driven today in everything that we're doing. So on that Craig we don't get bogged down too much in your junior years but you were also a pretty good triathlete at, at, at high school, I believe, and, and you could have probably excelled in other sports. Why, why was it running? I wish I had an answer for that, Croix. I actually, I think it was just timing, to be honest. Like, I, I love triathlon, still do, still do a bit of work in triathlon, um, and I really enjoy all the three disciplines. I think in, in particular for younger developing athletes, I think triathlon is the perfect foundation. Even for athletes that want to go on into middle distance running, I think the ability to swim and ride uh, and develop, develop your aerobic engine without the stress of the load of running is really, really important, to, even to the point where that's a, a big area of, of focus for me in, in identifying young, talented athletes. Um, but we had the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. I finished high school in 1998. 
Uh, and I think just in all honesty, it was more the timing than anything else. The opportunity in, in athletics was far greater. In triathlon, they only had three athletes, men and women, to be selected in the Olympic distance triathlon. And at 18, coming out of high school, that wasn't going to happen for, for a junior triathlete. But in track and field, you could do 1,500, 5K steeple. Um, you know, there, were, there was more opportunities. Um, and I, in year 12, my final year of school, just focused on running rather than all the other disciplines because, you know, I had other commitments with school and everything else. And I was always a strong runner in triathlon, but I was quite a good swimmer as well. I, I would say they were probably on par in terms of my, my ability. I would never have made it as an elite swimmer. I wasn't that good. But at, in high school, I wasn't an elite runner. I just was very fit. You know, there were, you know I used to do things like um, ride from Geelong to Lawn and back, which is about 120, 130K on a Sunday with, with a triathlon group or a cycling group that I was training with. And then I'd get home or back to, you know, to the start of the ride and there'd be a note from a dad on the answering machine and my coach saying, you know, you, you tell Craig he's got to ride home, which is another 35K back to Lara. Um, then my coach would give me $2, send me to Baker's Delight to buy a custard scroll and then ride home. Um, and that was just how we did it back then. So it was never about focusing on being the best runner. It was just about being getting really fit and strong and building that base, which you can never under underestimate or never forget that that has a huge impact on your ability to then transition from junior to senior sport and carry that fitness level um, you know, into whatever sport or discipline you choose to play. And it could be footy, it could be netball, it could be whatever. That foundation of fitness when you're younger um, is huge. And I, I get asked all the time about um, why are African athletes better than non-African athletes and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't think there's any, I mean, there's plenty of reasons, but one of the big ones is they're just active, a lot more active when they're younger. They have a bigger aerobic base, a bigger engine. Yes, they're genetically different. Um, they live at altitude and all of those various bits and pieces, but we have the ability to do that too. Um, one of the biggest things that um, you'll see with the athletes that are really good, uh, Australian ones in particular, and, and from other parts of the world, not, not, not so much Africa, is they're very fit all the way through their younger life. So they're doing lots of different things. They're not necessarily early specialising in running, but they're just fit. They have big engines. They're always out there doing stuff. They're on their feet. They're competitive. Um, it, athletics isn't something that you can, in middle distance anyway, that in my opinion, you can pick up when you turn 20. You know, you have to have 10 years of work before that, whether you know you're doing it or not. Yeah. I'm uh, glad you brought up the Sydney Olympics because a lot of our younger listeners wouldn't understand, I guess, the the drama involved with you making that team. Uh -huh. And pe people know about your um, 2006 Com Games fall, but there's another uh, famous fall, I guess, at the uh, Olympic trials in 2000. Do you want to talk us through what happened there? Not really. Um, <laughs> yeah, well... I was I was uh, 19, I think, at the time, and I, I don't even know why I was in the 1500, to be fair, because I, I hadn't run the qualifying time for the 1500. I actually ran the qualifying time for the 5K in Battersea Park a, a month or two before the Olympic trials in, in Sydney in 2000. Um, and anyway, for the, the sort of wiser minds at the time thought the 1500 would be a good event to do. So I did the 1500, made it through to the final, and then I needed to finish in the first three to qualify automatically. Oh, sorry, I had to win. Oh, sorry, I had to win to qualify automatically because I only had the B standard. And back then there was an A and a B standard. A was time, you know, you, you qualify. B was if you won the trial, you would get in and then it was up to selector's discretion, you know, from there on in. Um, and so I needed to win. And I was leading into the home straight. I mean, there was another athlete 
Um, Nick Howarth was his name. I don't even know what he's doing now, actually, to be honest, Nick Howarth. But he was very, very talented, very, very good runner, but just an overly enthusiastic um, personality. You know, he'd be doing push-ups on the start line and all of this sort of stuff. And he tried to get up on the inside of me and sort of pushed me on the hip to, to move me out so that he could get a run through the inside. And 50 metres to go into 1,500, you're all out. You don't have a lot of legs left. And I fell over um, and then got up and walked over the finish line and, you know... Young, bit of, <laughs> bit of hot headedness going on, which was pretty standard for me. Um, we had some firm words, and um, you know, a few things went missing fresh air shots, and all of that sort of stuff. And <laughs> uh, so it was, a, it was a bit of fun. And then I was, um, I got into a bit of strife for, for bringing the sport into disrepute, and you know, all of this sort of stuff. And there were some other stories that happened after that with some of the guys. You wouldn't, I don't know if you remember these guys' names like Darren Lynch and Rowan Perrett and Lee Troop, and all of these guys. Who I used to run with in Geelong a lot, and we had really good mateship. You know, we stood up for each other and looked after each other, and all that. And they were, you know, plotting how they were going to get this guy back and all of this sort of stuff. But anyway, long story short, um, after I walked off the track from that, I wasn't going to be selected in the fifteen hundred, obviously. So my coach, um, who was Bruce Griven at the time, um, said, "Go and run the five k." Because if you've got the time for the five k, you won't be selected if you don't run the trial. And I said, "Bruce, that's, that's in twenty minutes." And he goes, yes, go and run it. So I went straight from that to the 5K, ran the 5K, finished fourth out of the A qualified athletes. I think it was Sean Crichton, Michael Power, Mizan Mahari, um, the late Mizan Mahari with the three ahead of me. And then I finished fourth um, in, that, in that race. And Darren Lynch, I think, was another one who had actually qualified and didn't qualify in the 5K. So I thought that was it, thought it was, you know, it was over for me, wasn't going to go to Sydney Olympics, all of that sort of stuff. And then... Uh, a few weeks later, got a phone call from, I can't even remember who rang me. I think Bruce Scriven actually rang me and I was on a farm in Anarchy shooting rabbits. And and uh, he said, you've got to run in the Olympics in a couple of weeks. You need to come back to Geelong and get yourself ready. I said, how's that happen? He said, well, Sean Crichton's focused on the, on the 10K and he's given up his spot in the 5K for you. Um, so you're in the team. And that's how that happened. So had that not happened and had the timing of all that not come together and had I not fallen over potentially and all those sort of things, maybe I wouldn't have been in running. Who knows? But it's, um, you know, back to your original point, why running? Fuck knows. Why would you do it? It's a, a side, it's note to, side note to that was because um, it made like the headlines because, yeah, Nick Howarth ended up getting DQ'd. So then Yusuf Abdi was the winner of that race. And then they had a, a trial, Correct. a rerun the week later in Adelaide. in Adelaide. And I think it was you. I think Yusuf won. Then it was maybe Nick. Yep. Then you third. Yeah. Which is, which is pretty rare to have like uh, a, a rerun. Well, they, they put everyone on a plane the next week. So, mm. you know, and you can imagine that. You put yourself in that position where you've just run the trial and then the, the whoever it was made the decision, no, we'll fly you all. You've got to do it again next week. So we're going to bring everyone back and you're going to, they just made up some event in Adelaide, put everyone down there, 15 blokes, and made us run again in Adelaide. And um, credit to... Um, to Yusuf and to Nick, they they ran better than I did in the retrial. I just didn't cope with the, that setup at all, and um, they got their opportunities to to make the team. And luckily enough, I I got there through the generosity of another athlete, Sean Crichton, who I still to this day I was slab a beer to. It's become a bit of a joke actually because I promised him that at the time in two thousand, and I'll, I will repay him at some point. We'll take a slab of beer to his home and we'll sit there and drink it. You know he drinks very expensive red wine though, Craig. Could cost you a bit this so, uh, pain very of my... clear, Craig, in my in my uh, 
It's a slab of beer. I'm happy to get him a nice slab of beer. I can only imagine what Sean drinks these days. It would be way out of my budget, but we'll, uh, we'll enjoy telling stories regardless of what it is. So then the years through that, like moving from Bruce to Nick and becoming who you did become throughout 2004, 2005, 2006, like did anything significant change in training or was it just more of a professional approach from this kind of like young kid starting sport to to becoming the massive name that you did over those years? It's a good question. You know, back in from 2000 to 2002, was actually 98 through to 2002 when I was coached solely by Bruce um, Melbourne track club was, was around obviously with the, with the Olympics and Freeman and Ron Robinson and Kyle Vanderkart and Tim Forsyth and all these guys, there was a really big movement with that Melbourne track club um, team. And I sort of formed part of that in, you know, in, in the early days of, of my career, but was coached by Bruce. But ultimately you then end up working with, uh, with the other coaches that are associated with Melbourne track club. And, I don't think the train the training changed a little bit at the end of 2002 when I moved on from Bruce, but I think it was more the environment and the opportunity and the ability to train, you know, in the UK and in America and get into races and all of those sort of things that that brought me on. And I've, I've actually been asked this before: Do I think I would have run 12:55 if I'd stayed with Bruce as as my coach? And I think I said ultimately yes, I would have run fast under 13 minutes. I would have run maybe not maybe not the PBs. Who knows? It's impossible to know. Would I have medaled at a major championship? Maybe not. Um, and I think so, so. The environment and the ability to get into races and believe you can win and compete and overcome challenges. Um, I think the Melbourne Track Club set up and that environment and professionalism around that helped develop that element of me. Did it make me a better runner? No. I think ultimately. The athlete is who they are genetically. They've got the physiology. They've got the ability. They've got the natural um, engine and all of that sort of stuff. The training complements it and helps build it and develop it. But the psychology around running and competing and winning and all of those sort of things is is a big part of what the coach provides. So I think physically I probably would have had the ability to run as quick, but psychologically would I have been as determined and focused and driven as I was? Maybe not. Um, and I think that's what that environment sort of helps create and I, I I talk about my own coaching now and and no doubt we will later on but I was very fortunate in my career to have someone like Bruce Scriven in the early days where he taught me why I love running why I do various bits and pieces and you probably heard this in the other podcast I said but it's worth pointing out again that that is really important in the development of young athletes to understand why they do things and the passion for doing it and then having that passion then being in, put in an environment where you can really take it to the next level is, is a really important transition as well. And then, and that was the Melbourne track club set up. And then obviously the back end of my career with Chris, where you're sort of starting to wind down, you've got other interests in life. You might have children, you might have work or business or whatever, and how you balance all of that. Chris was really fundamental in that for me in terms of being able to let go of just being a runner. So almost transitioning out of that professional environment into a more balanced lifestyle which is really important too at the right time in your career. So I think I was really fortunate to have the three phases uh, and the three different personalities that I got to work with uh, and I've taken a lot from each of them and, uh, and it's given me a, you know, a really nice foundation to continue developing myself as a coach and, and what we do now with the OAC and with, with our business Elite Wellbeing and all of that sort of stuff. It's been hugely important. We'll get to um, some big okay. results in a second. Can I just jump in that? 2002 yeah. what? 
across short course, the fifth position. Like I know everyone likes to talk about Helsinki and the com games and stuff, but like is that one that you feel um, gets a bit lost in all of it? Well, I hadn't thought about it until you just raised it then, to be honest. Um, yeah, I suppose. But, I mean, that short course cross-country, I loved it because it, it, it was there to fit athletes like me into cross-country. So, And it, for us, it fits nicely at the back end of our Australian season. So you might run the 5K at the Nationals or the 3K at the Nationals or whatever, and then you get to go over and run a world cross-country race over 4K a week later. We're really in a, you know, in a really good period of time for us athletically to go and perform well. Um, I think that was in Dublin, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But it wasn't soft, though. Like, because there was a short and a long, it wasn't like one of them was the main event and the other one was just for some track guys. Like, it was still super competitive. They were loaded. Uh, yeah, I yeah. remember, um, you know, like we would – you'd be running 2.30 for the first K in cross country to get yourself in position. They were some of the most highly tense moments before a world cross country short course. You've got six guys in a metre-by-metre box with a rope across the front. And then you knew straight away as soon as the gun went, it was on and you'd have 200 guys stampeding towards a corner um, and, you know, 12 mil spikes and all of that sort of stuff was, um, you know, at the bottom of your shoes, you run into them and you, I ended up having stitches a couple of times after world cross races with running into the back of spikes. Um, but I think world cross generally gets lost a little bit. And, I, and on that, I, you know, you mentioned Benita at the start of, of this in terms of athletes you've had on these podcasts guys like you and people that listen to this would would know what winning a world cross means um you know it's probably the toughest event in the world to win in in middle and long distance running and back to our original point about how to make athletics relatable cross country is kind of one of those things that's not necessarily that relatable but far out when you're doing it it's really hard to be good at it and benita's win in you know three or whenever it was in um in belgium was probably one of the greatest runs in australian track and field and cross-country history. Mm. To, to go and win that is unbelievable. So, yeah, the fifth at World Short Course Cross is a good result, but, you know, there's, there's been plenty of good results that don't necessarily capture the imagination of the population, which means they don't necessarily draw that the same level of interest. So um, I enjoyed World Cross. It served a purpose, but um, it's not ones that I look back at and say, am I better runs? No. You keep going, Brady, because I think we'll go through um... – yeah, more of the career. I've got more questions about the mental side of running and stuff like that, which we'll get to. Well, let's go to Helsinki, Craig. Like the um, 2005 World Champs, it was – I rewatched it. I've rewatched it so many times, and obviously it features in the Big Mazungo, the documentary. I'm sure there's a lot of fans out there who have um, just watched that last 50 metres where you were you were gone, but you come back. Mm. Like it was – it was, I don't know, like it never happens like that. Once you get past, we have 60, 50, 40 metres to go, especially when it's guys like Kip Ch- Kip is the guy actually passed you and then you, you re-dipped him on the line. Um, ben Lima was first, Shireen was was second. Um, the first medal in so long um, on the track for 5K. I think it's probably, I've got down here, I'm not sure if this is correct, but the first non-African-born runner to receive a medal in the event until Jakob uh, Ingebrigtsen got it. Uh, 2022 so that was when I was still a young kid but I remember that was the first like mainstream kind of thing like seeing that on channel 7 news and things like that like actually athletics on the mainstream kind of media and yeah do you want to maybe just take us through what it was like obviously you're super fit and you're super confident and then what happened in that last 200 meters well it's interesting I like hearing stories of other people and how they watched it and where they were when they watched it and all of that sort of stuff because there was there was lots of interest um, 
and, and there's many reasons for that. But obviously, Com Games in Melbourne six months after the World Championships meant that athletics was on the radar in, in Australia with, with a major event like that in our region. Um, but I've even heard stories, um, Eloise Wellings, who you may, I don't even know, she may have been on this podcast maybe before, but yep. mm-hmm. um, she pulled over into a service station in the early hours of the morning, I think it was, and actually got them to put it on the TV, um, you know, the, the race, because there was no YouTube or internet or live streaming or whatever of that. Um, it was on Foxtel or whatever it was back then. Um, and she actually pulled over and got them to put it on the TV there and, and watched it, which was pretty cool. So actually hearing people's stories and how much of an impact it had and how interested they were. At the time, I probably didn't appreciate as a runner. For me, I was just going there to try to run a race and win. And um, I, I was in really good nick. I'd run 348 for the mile. Um, I think the better run, actually, from that World Championships at Helsinki was my heat. Um, Kipchoge and I went neck and neck in the heat and both jogged through in 13-12. And it was the easiest 13-12 you've ever run in your life. We were in heat two. We probably didn't need to run that. I think heat heat one had run 13-40. But we were just, you know, just egging each other on a little bit in that final lap. And we both looked at each other. And I remember um, after the race, uh, I had several people in the warm down area come up and go, far out, you know, you, you would be, you know, one of the favourites to win that. And, and I knew that at the time. I was in really good nick and I thought I could win that race. Um, but we, we kind of needed it to go a little bit quicker in the final to, to have it sort of fall where my strengths were, which is a, a bit of a quicker pace and then just winding it up over the last three laps. Um, but it was quite slow, the, the final itself. We didn't have any assistance in that race at all. I think the only other non-African person in, in there was Marius Bakken from, from Norway. Um, who ironically I spoke to after the race and he said, oh, had you asked me, I would have taken it out for you because he took it on after about halfway, I think. But we didn't know him at the time very well or anything like that. Um, so my, my plan and strategy was quite simple, was to um, settle, relax, don't make any unnecessary runs um, and then be on um, on the shoulder of Elliot Kipchoge at the belt uh, and then try to take it on down the back straight, get to the front and and hold on. Um, and had it been a little bit quicker, that, that would have suited me more. But obviously with the slower pace, everyone in the last five or 600 metres can run really quickly. Um, you know, 50, 53 seconds for the final lap is not out of the, out of the ordinary at that level. Um, and so I got on the shoulder of where I needed to be at the bell. I positioned well, did everything I wanted to do, tried to move to the front down the back straight, but got held out by, I think it was Seleshi Sahini. He was holding me out and I couldn't get to the front. And I was maxed out on the back straight to try to get there and then had to make the decision to slot in behind him rather than run wide around the turn. And then in the straight, go again. And anyone that's run, and you guys have done this yourselves, I'm sure you get to the home straight, you're already moving as quickly as you can. You try to go faster and you tighten up. And my big tell for me is my shoulders used to come up. Um, I'd stick my chin out and then I'd start to lean back. And I think the best thing for me that happened was Kipchoge passed me on the outside and then I went from thinking I could try to win this to thinking, fuck, uh, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to get a medal here. And I sort of took a big breath and relaxed. And then I, in my mind something tweaked and it's happened to me before um, in competition where I was like, you know, can I swear on this? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, swear <laughs> I on the was like, fuck that. Like I, I can't not get a medal in this. Like you know, this, this chance, this opportunity, they never, they very rarely come around. And so I just fought on and I kept going and going. And I think having that breath and taking a moment to relax and then actually, you know, re-going again and just 
digging in deep to the line. It is desperation, and it's it's hard to explain what that is. And to athletes that don't have it, it's really difficult to give it to them. It's kind of a natural thing. Um, and I always had it growing up when I was playing soccer, when I was playing footy, playing school sport. Even to this day, I've been banned from cards on any OAC training camp because I crack the shit. Uh, I'm too competitive uh, with that sort of stuff. And it's just a desire to not want to let let it go. And I think in that in that moment, in that situation, and my parents were in the grandstand as well, and they said to me afterwards, it was like when you were in Little Ass and you used to have guys like Paul Jamison and Chris McCarthy and all these guys, you know, that would we'd go neck and neck in Little Ass and that competitive nature and desire and spirit to want to beat each other up in racing. You got to, you know, you, you got to have that to be competitive in track and field, and it, that's it's a natural instinct. I, I, I can't tell you exactly how or why it happened, but it was just a moment mm-hmm. where you you just sort of go within yourself and you think, nah, I, I can't just accept that that fourth place is going to be okay, and you just fight on and got got Elliot on the line just um, came third, which was great. Um, you know, as a great result, really exciting to medal and all of those sort of things. But it does kind of you do kind of wonder had had the race gone a little bit quicker and all of those sort of things what what the result may have been. But I'm I'm quite happy with with a bronze medal there. Seleshi was fantastic. Ben Limo, who won it, um, that that's probably the best run he's ever had. Um, was awesome as well. And he actually came out to the Com Games in 06 to race me there um, in a in a totally different event again. Do you feel though like you go into the race with Kipchoge's the one to beat and then Ben Limo blows everyone away in the last 40 metres and then maybe Ben Limo is the one to beat at the 2006 Com Games as the world champion and then this random small young Augustine Shoki kind of is the only one that hangs with you with three or four laps to go? Like, so always hard. Up? Yeah, so hard to predict who was going to be the guy to beat when we raced because you, know, you can't always have a good day like and and – for me, there was only ever one one of me out there doing this. So if I didn't have a good day, you'd get beaten. As simple as that. If I had a good day, then you could be competitive. But you just didn't know. There was always going to be others in the race having a good day because there were so many um, athletes from from Africa at the time coming out. And we there was Isaac Songok, who was probably the most talented runner in that race, who had run twelve forty eight, I think, earlier that season um, in Oslo, and. You know, to be quite honest, he should be—he should have been winning those races. But psychologically, he just didn't engage well in the high-pressure scenarios or situations like that. So we had half an eye on him as well, thinking, well, if he runs up to standard, he—he's going to be really hard to beat. Ben Limo was not even discussed in terms yeah, right. of what um, you know what he's going to offer. And I think only because the race went slow, he became dangerous. But we we didn't know that at the time. Like in the thirteen ten race, he wouldn't have featured, maybe. We think. Um, but what we did know was um, Elliot Kipchoge would have been there or thereabouts. So he was always going to be in the fight to win a medal at the bell. So the, the strategy for me was always to try to create something that was consistent. So if, if ever Bernard Legat was in the race, get on Bernard Legat at the bell and you'll be in a position to win if you're good enough. Or if Bakili was in the race, just follow him. You know, like, like keep it really simple in terms of the strategy. And we knew Elliot Kipchoge would be there at the bell trying to win. So if I could be on him and I was good enough, then I'd be a chance to win. Um, and I, I probably wasn't in a position at that point to, you know, to take it on from four or five laps out myself. Um, you know, I was 
I wasn't young, but it was the first cha- time in a major championship that I was in a position to actually try to, to fight to win a medal. So, um, and the year before in, in the Olympics in um, in Athens, I finished eighth. And um, I think I can't remember the seven in front of me, but they're all world-class athletes. And, and um, I think for the first time in 05, I actually honestly believed that I could beat them. In 08, it was more about following them and just seeing how long I could hang up, hang on for. In 2005, it was, well, I can beat these guys. What's the best strategy for me to do it and, and try to implement that? And then beyond that, like in 06, when you saw it at the Commonwealth Games, I took it on from the front. We realised, okay, well, following them not, doesn't necessarily work. Let's try to take it on. And always trying to evolve and, and figure out scenarios to try to win the races was something mm. um, that I was always doing. Brady, I'm guessing you're going to go to like the 2006 Com Games, but before we get yeah. to that, you've come off the bronze medal, 2005 World Champs. Australia have the Com Games. You know what the Australian public's like when we have a major event. Did you feel a sense of pressure in the lead up to Com Games, and like how did you sort of deal with that? Um, it was exciting. Like, yeah, there's pressure and um, expectation and all of those sort of things, but I think athletes in that situation. That we like the excitement and we like, uh, you know, it sounds silly, but you like it when people follow you and support you and encourage you and want to see you do well. And generally speaking, most people are just, they want you to do well. So their support and encouragement is about, you know, wanting you to achieve good things and, and be successful in those, and, and those sort of things. So if you take it the right way, it's really exciting and it's uplifting and it can help you, you know, do better. Um, and and that's, that was the take that I had in, in 06 was that, you know, it was it was an exciting opportunity for me to run. I was living in Richmond, just over the road from the MCG. Um, you know, it was really a really exciting time for our sport. Um, but it did, it did get a bit overwhelming at times to the point where I actually left Melbourne and went and trained either in Falls Creek or in Ballarat just to get out of the, the you know the main part of, of Melbourne. You couldn't go for a run around the tan without starting on your own and ending up with twenty people running with you, wanting to talk about running and all of those other bits and pieces, which is great. But when you're doing it twice a day every day, seven days a week, you, you kind of just need to have your own space and, and do what you need to do. Um, but as long as you take it positively that people are doing it because they're interested and excited to watch you do well, I think for the most part it, it's really exciting. We won't talk about too much, Craig, because I think a lot of the listeners have have seen it and watched it, and I think I've watched it a couple hundred times on YouTube. It's terrible quality. Have you got a better quality one that you can upload to YouTube yourself? Whoever's uploaded that, I've got a thousand DVDs, Brady. I got it. They're sitting at my desk. Yeah, I'll give you one. That'd be fantastic. I'm sick of watching the grainy version of it. But do you look back now? I was in the stands actually, like the loudest. I've been to a couple of like AFL, you know, prelims and semis and stuff as well, where there's 90,000, 95,000 in there. And um, the thing is, though, like half a barracking for one team, the other half a barracking for the other team. So it doesn't, it gets loud, but not quite that loud. But that night at the MCG, um, so loud when you went the front, went to the front, and like, even though you didn't win, there was just a sense of like, sounds lame, but like Australian pride that you just you tried so hard mm. to win, and like you didn't just sit back and just get you know drop off the back. You were trying to drop them, and you dropped them all bar one in Augustine Chogi, and um, yeah, just a, a massive race for Australian athletics world. And I wonder what you think of it now, like. Does it, when you watch it back, or I'm not sure if you even do or think about it back, like, does it feel different to, to at the time? Like a bit of a, was that really me kind of moment? It does. Like you, 
you remember it, but the like I don't know much detail about the race itself because you're so focused on on what you're doing and concentrating on um, on on how you're feeling and being relaxed and in the moment, and yet your senses are so heightened that you kind of your memory you're not really remembering it. I don't know if that makes sense. I always say that the, the good races you don't often remember that much because you're so in the moment. You're, you're focusing on what you're doing. The bad ones you remember every step of them because you're trying to figure out how to get out of there or I don't want to be here or this is crap or whatever. And they, and those memories um, sort of stay in your mind. And interestingly, my my wife Christine she's done a PhD in, in athlete well-being and neuroplasticity in the mind and how our mind is negatively geared. So automatically, uh, a human's mind is geared towards the negative. So we remember the negative. We always default back to that. And I'll ask you, it's off tangent here a little bit, but at the end of the day, when you're lying in bed and you're thinking about the day, how many of you think about what you did well versus what you didn't do well? Most of the time, you'll sit in bed worrying about what you fucked up or what you didn't do rather than giving yourself praise around what you did do. You know, oh, geez, I trained really well today or I did that well or you know, I spoke to that person really politely or whatever. We always think about what we didn't do well. And I think it's the same in races when we, we look back at the races. We always think about what we didn't do well and we forget to praise ourselves on what we actually did well. So when I look back at, at this race in, in Melbourne and look at the 5K and think about it, I always try to think about what I did really well. Um, even though I came second, there, couldn't, there wasn't anything more I could have done, in my opinion anyway, to try to win that race. Like I, I had a plan and a strategy in terms of how I wanted to approach it. Uh, we weren't 100% sure how fast it would go. But I think after the first lap, it was a pretty clear indicator that the three Kenyans were going to take it on um, and, and make it quick, which probably sacrificed Ben Limo a little bit, um, to be honest. We're not entirely sure why they did that, but we didn't, again, weren't that aware of Augustine Chogi and how good he was going to be. Um, the main focus was on how to beat Ben Limo, which was to start building it up from four laps out and dropping him, um, which is ultimately what we did. But there was just one other guy who hung on a bit longer. Um, and... You know, the, the thoughts for me, uh, I'm not, I don't get frustrated by it because, as I said, there wasn't much more I could have done. But the just the level of competition and the desire to want to try to win that and do everything I could to, to do that, um, I, I sit here now and I'm really proud of that. There was just another guy that was too good. And you, you can't be disappointed in that. And Augustine was fantastic, um, was brilliant. Um, and we both ran under four minutes for the last mile of that race. So, I mean, honestly, what, what more could, could you do? And I think that's why people respect it because I was happy to try to win, do everything I could to win, but then in defeat, you know, knowing that you've done everything you could, you can stand tall and, and honestly hand on heart say there wasn't anything more I could do and there was just someone better. Yeah. Yeah, anybody listening to this that hasn't watched that video, go and do it because um, there's two videos that if I'm lacking motivation, it's the 2006 Com Games and it's an El Garouge montage with Bruce McAvaney's um, uh, commentary from the 2004 uh, Olympics. Those two, it's like you watch those and you're like, I'm going for a run. Doesn't matter how, if it's pissing down rain outside. Um, Craig, between sort of after Com Games, like we're, we're going to get to you sort of coming back from the dead in 2012. Like you had some sort of mixed results. Like I remember 2011 Zatapec just before you then, you know, a few months later or the next year qualified for the Olympics. Like you're rocking up finishing seventh at a Zatapec. Admittedly, it's a 10K when you're like one of the best we've ever had. How, like, was that, was that hard for you? Um, of course it's hard because 
you know you you know what athlete you are and and how you know how you want to you know to run and all those sort of things but you can't always be at your best and I think sometimes you, you've got to acknowledge and appreciate the little wins along the way in terms of um, what you're doing and and yes that that race was disappointing I remember doing it but if you'd understood the years previous to that it was actually a win uh, to get out there and, and run a 10k and actually get through the event and be able to run the next day and not many people would understand my journey from, from um, you know from 2008 after the Olympics in uh, in Beijing when I was probably one of the favorites to get a medal to be quite honest in, in Beijing and didn't make the final uh, and flew home I, I had some pretty bad Achilles issues um, actually from when I fell over in 2006 at the Commonwealth Games I didn't realize but I pulled up a bit sore in my calf and then ran and went and raced the world short course cross country in Japan finished eighth or ninth or something I think in that and then um, was quite sore and then got, got orthotics to try to accommodate a few little challenges. I had plantar fasciitis and things like that, got orthotics to try to help that, and then got Achilles problems. And in 2007, 2008, was managing quite bad Achilles. And the morning of my heat in, in the Olympics in 2008, I was sleeping in, in um, plantar fascia boots, so I had two boots on. Couldn't walk in the mornings, had to get up, walk for half an hour or whatever before I could go for a jog and, and went and run. And then after, after Beijing, went home had some tough decisions to make. And then one of them was obviously to try to get healthy. And it took three years, three years and three Achilles operations to get my Achilles right before I could actually do some training again. And that, that Zatapec that you talk about and that race in 2012, uh, in fact, the race in 2012 was five weeks after having my third Achilles operation when I qualified for my fourth Olympics. So yeah, maybe they're not my greatest runs. Maybe they're not my fastest times. Maybe they're not my best finishes, but, they, they took more effort than anything else to get out there and do, ironically, um, and to overcome those, those challenges. And that's what happens in the back end of your career. Um, as you get older as an athlete, it's just part of the process is that your body starts to, especially when you've worked it as hard as I have, um, your body starts to break down and you've got to overcome different challenges. And that's where um, you know, having other things in your life and other um, elements to what you're doing is, is really important because if you're putting all your eggs in running and it's not going your way, life becomes pretty challenging. Yeah. And that 2012 at Lakeside in the rain, uh, won the race. Like it was like the return, like in a way, like, um, mm. you know, from the Nike to the Adidas kit, the change of coach, we, when Rob was on the show, actually, he said that he, he, these were his words that he had a, you had a shocker 1500, like maybe two or three weeks before in Sydney. And he kind of sent you to Falls Creek and then, you did a session with, um, I think it was Pat Scammell on the track in Albury. And then you kind of yep. knew you were ready to go. And then, yeah, come out and did that. And, um, yeah, it was a, you were still, you were still there kind of thing. It was a great result to see. It was just, it was just harder to get to. I think that was the, mm. if that makes sense. Like you, as you progress down the back end of your career, those moments become less frequent because the energy required to get up for them is, is more difficult. And I, I ran in that 1500 that Rab's referring to, I ran three, 41 or something I think in Sydney it wasn't a disaster but it wasn't great and I we walked the lap of the track in the warm down area afterwards and this was how this was this was how my mind worked and still kind of does work this way it needed it needs a trigger sometimes to set it off and that was a trigger for I was just furious at myself for not running well there and not delivering what I wanted to deliver and that was a trigger for me I was like I said to Chris at the time 
I said, I'm going back to Falls Creek and in two weeks I'm going to win that 5K at the trials and we'll go to, we'll go to London. And he just looked at me and went, okay, and walked off. And that was all I needed. I went back to Falls Creek. I knuckled down. I know the session you're talking about. We went, drove to Albury. Pat Scammell had the key to get us on the track. We came on the track. Lee Troop was there. We did quarters. And I can't remember. I think I ran like 13, 18 or something for quarters. And I said to Troopy at the time, don't fucking tell anyone about this, but I'm fucking, I'm, I'm on. We'll be good. <laughs> and then went to, went to Lakeside. And, and I knew I was going to go head-to-head against Collis in that race. And I... This amazes me sometimes, this sort of stuff, but I knew exactly what they were going to do because I knew his coach. I'd worked with him before. It wasn't rocket science. I knew that there would be pace for six laps and Collis was going to try to break me. Fuck, genius, right? Mm-hmm. And that was exactly what happened. And I was like kind of laughing to myself going, how, yeah, how obvious can you be? And um, follow, 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 250 to go. See you later. Basically, um, Melbourne Track Club towed me through to an automatic qualifier in my fourth Olympics. I thank you very much. Yeah, and you could. I, I I'm just an outsider looking in, but you could feel there was that. It felt like tension, like it was like the Melbourne Track Club of you know you were there, but then you'd moved on, and now like you're going head to head, and because it didn't even like back in the day, wasn't Collis like nicknamed like Simba as like the the one who would take over after you'd kind of left, and like I'm living in a Chukamoama here, and these stories third or fourth hand, but that night it definitely felt like it was a an, an answer back almost. Well, I don't know. See, it depends what motivates you. And sometimes that external motivation is what you need to get up and, and going. But ultimately, you've got to be driven internally in terms of what, you know, what, what you desperately want to do. And, and I wanted to qualify for my fourth Olympics. And I put in a lot of work and I knew what I needed to do and all of those sort of things. And all that other noise is simply that. It's noise. Yeah, it's very, it can become very consuming. Mm. Um, but you've you've got to find a way to actually work work around it and don't get encapsulated by it because it becomes negative um, and it puts a lot of extra pressure on you and some people can deal with it, some people can't deal with it. Um, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't, you know, extra motivation uh, to get back, but um, ultimately at the end of the day, it's, that's, it's that drive within you to want to compete regardless of who the competition is, whether it was Collis or whether it was... Ben Lima or Augustine Chogi or whoever it was, it's that determination to want to, to beat the people you're competing against is, is what drives what drives me anyway. Um, and I'm sure there was some there was some extra tension around that for, for various reasons, no doubt. But but ultimately it was about me trying to qualify for my fourth Olympics and uh, and to do that I had to to win a race and and win it in the time and, and we did that. All right, Craig, hey, um, so let's pepper some questions at him and then yeah. get on the part two. Sure just the mental, Craig, quick fire. Yes, yeah, so okay. just the mental side of distance running. So at the elite level, obviously everybody's physically talented, and often it's the mental side that holds people back. I always felt that when you're at your best, you were very good at that part of the sport. Almost like there was this, and don't take it the wrong way, like this air of arrogance about you. Like I remember hearing, I don't know if you were saying it. Um, you referred to it the 2006 World Cup when your coach called you up the day before and you said, "Oh yeah, Pakili's running," and you put it nicely but i think you sort of said oh i don't give a shit who's running almost like i am going to beat that person there's not a lot of people that have that confidence how do you how do you develop that um i think it comes from the the work that goes into it um and the environment you're in i spoke about it briefly a lot of it's it's natural like it's just in you um and you've got to be unafraid to let it out um you know like i think the, the key to all of this is not being afraid to get beaten 
or to lose. But, you know, certainly, you know, be afraid to not try. Like if you're not trying, that's, in my opinion, that that's a cop-out. That, that, that in, yeah. in many respects is, is worse than being beaten because a lot of people fall default back to that because they know that if they haven't tried and they've got beaten, they've got an excuse. I used to always put myself in a position where I didn't have an excuse and I was quite happy to get beaten. Like Melbourne, if someone was better, then good on you. I'm happy to shake your hand and say, well done. But what I couldn't deal with, like that 1,500 in Sydney two weeks before the 2012 Olympic trials, was not give my best. That really annoyed me. Um, and if I ever did that, that, that's when I got really upset. I was never upset beaten by someone better or on a day that I gave my best. When I ran 12.55, Gabriel Celesi beat me. I know these are short-fire questions, sorry, but yeah, when he beat okay. me, I gave my best, so I can be happy with that, right? Like, yeah. Um, but the days you don't give you the best are the days that haunt you the most. Uh, you mentioned one of your regrets in the sport was not getting on the piss with Warney on the way home. Any other regrets in terms of, like, things that you would have liked to have changed with either races or mistakes you made in training? Um, anything that stands out? Not really. I'm pretty happy with with the career I had. Um, I think um, no, to be quite honest. I, I, I gave it everything, did everything I could, and very happy with what I achieved. Craig, my one's around, like, what do you think about some of these guys you used to race and training with um, who have shown, like, longevity in the sport? Like, we've seen Kipchoge dominate the World Marathons scene. Um, Bikili still rocks up at a couple of marathons. Augustine Chogi, he started Boston. I think he was a DNF in the end. Mo Farah, your old training partner, who then went on to dominate with the gold medals. Like, when you sit back and you you were kind of out of the sport where they're still still kicking around, what's what's their secret? What do you reckon? Oh, um, I have no idea. They may not have anything else to do in life. I got, I'm not sure. But I probably started a little bit earlier than they did. I, I sort of started in 99, 2000, where Mo didn't get on the scene until 04, 05, 06. He was still just getting into it, and then he was great. Um, Kipchoge's probably the one. He, he's the most impressive one. Bakili, yes, has got, had some longevity, but Kipchoge ran in 01, 02, 03, medalled in those major championships, and he's still going. So for him, mate, I, you'd have to ask him what the secret is. I have no idea, but whatever it is, it's impressive. That's pretty good. My other question is about how do you think you'd go if you were an athlete in this day and age with like the the social media world and the Strava and the like the interaction? Like you're always great at doing the interviews, but do you think there's a responsibility for athletes now to put X amount of content on Instagram? And we talked about the OAC guys over in America with their podcast and YouTube channel. And how do you think you'd fit into that scene now? Would you embrace it or like just throw your phone in the river? I would have probably throw my phone in the river. Um, I, I really would struggle with it now, uh, although <coughs> you're different now than you were 15, 20 years ago. But when I was running, Let's Run was probably the main sort of interaction between the running community, um, good, bad and ugly in terms of the message boards and articles and all of that sort of stuff. Flow Track was just getting up and going, so there was a bit of a, a sort of medium there um, for interviews and all of that sort of stuff. And um, But I never got on the Let's Run, never watched the flow track stuff, never engaged with any of that because it used to not upset me, but it, it used to get me going, whether it was good good or not. The, the feedback if it was really good feedback. I'd feel really, you know, up and about. And if it wasn't, I'd get really angry or frustrated about it. So in the end, I was just 
I'm not going to read it. I don't want to know because, you know, at the end of the day, it's external you know, stimulus that, that I didn't need. I, I always knew that if I wanted to compete, I would be competitive. And if I needed some downtime, I could have that. I didn't need to, to follow all this other stuff. But in terms of what this generation of athlete needs to do, I think there is a an obligation um, for them to engage in in the social interaction of social media and things like that, more, more so because... Uh, of the professional nature of sport now, contracts they have, it's obviously ingrained in those contracts in terms of that engagement, interaction, posts and all of those other bits and pieces. Do I think it's good for them? No. Uh, I, I don't think it helps them run any better. Um, I certainly don't think it helps their state of mind. Uh, I think there's a lot of challenges, and this is a broader conversation outside of track and field as well in regards to um, to all the content and social media and all of those various bits and pieces. We see it every day in the school stuff that we do. Um, yes, it has a purpose, but it needs to be managed and it needs to be controlled at the, at the right time. And even now with some of the athletes that, that I'm working with, we'll put the phone away on competition day and actually not get engaged in, in social media. So if they want to put content out, you do it the day before or the day after, but don't do it in the day of competition because you get caught up in all the other bits and pieces. You need to focus on what you're doing rather than focus on what the expectations of, of others in terms of what you need to be doing. Yeah, one more each croaks, then we're going to OAC. Okay. Um, all right, let's go. What are your thoughts on the current state of like athletics and, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, somebody being popped for drugs, like thoughts on that? Track and field, road racing, <laughs> which is. These are not quick fire questions, yeah. you'd say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some consideration in regards to the responses. Um, I think that um, there are athletes that are, that are, are getting caught for doing the wrong thing and, and that's, that's inevitable, unfortunately, in all professional sport, not just in track and field. I, I don't like it. Um, but if you want to, again, be the glass half full person and say, well, then the testing is doing its job, um, fantastic. Um, but... Look, to be honest, I don't give it a lot of thought. Um, you know, I used to have to answer these questions all the time when I was running about athletes that may or may not have been getting assistance elsewhere. It was something that didn't factor into my mind because I had to run against them. Whether they were doing it or whether they weren't doing it, it, it didn't really matter to me. I still had to race against them. So um, same approach now with coaching. We do what we do. We know what we're doing. We believe in back in the process that we're going through and we'll go out and if we can deliver our best result, what's we can't control what these other athletes are going to do, whether they're doing the right or the wrong thing. We need to focus on what we're doing. Do you think the drugs, though, were just as bad back when you were competing? Because I remember there was a period there of diamond leagues where, you know, it used to be a period where if you were breaking 13 minutes, like there weren't that many people breaking 13. And then I remember one or two diamond leagues, there were like a, a, a multiple people running sub 1250. And so you're going, what's going on here? And you don't see that as much anymore. Like you see a few people running sub-1250, but there was, yeah, multiple amounts in one one race or a few races back then. Oh, there's definitely performances, uh, not just in middle distance, but in, in lots of the event categories where they stand out that you kind of look at and think that that's a little bit odd mm. uh, in terms of, of how, you know, how, how good that was. Um, but... Yeah, as I said, you try not to think about it too much. I mean, I think the progression in, in the sport now is in the depth of good performances. It's not necessarily in the actual pinnacle performance. So 
like Bakili's 12.37 has now been surpassed with a 12.35, but they're very rare. Um, Hisham El Garouge and Bernard Legat's 3.26, the guy's are actually not running mm. that fast anymore. So they're, they're not running any faster now than they were when I was running. In fact, we were running faster back then, but there's just mm. more people doing it more consistently across the board throughout the entire season anywhere. You know, they're not set up races in Oslo or in Zurich or whatever. They're, they're people are running... Like uh, Ollie Hall won the 1500 at the Commonwealth Games in 3.30. Like, I mean, those sort of performances are becoming more and more consistent. But to answer your question, I ran 12.55. I'm six foot three. I'm from Australia, born in Frankston. Um, If I can do it without any assistance, you know, drugs, whatever, just hard work, commitment and dedication – it would be wrong of me to start pointing the finger at other people that are running just as quick or maybe a few seconds faster and say, well, just because you've done that, you've cheated. I, I take the view that they're, they're just good, you know, and if they're doing the same work as me and doing the same, you know, for the same commitment as I do it and they're, you know, as, as focused and determined and have all the assets that I have, and if, well, I'm not that big-headed to say they're not better than me. I'm quite happy to admit that there are athletes in the world that were better than me. And if they ran 12.48, then great. I'll, I'll give them credit until proven otherwise. But if I can do it, there's no reason why others can't do the same thing. Enter the 2023 Gold Coast Marathon now and run your best race this July. 60% of runners achieve a PB at this event, and you can too. Head to goldcoastmarathon.com.au to enter now. Oh, oh, oh.